Welcome everyone to Double's Fingers episode 41. All men must die, but first we'll live. I'm Scatty, have with us Brooke and Matt as always. Hello. Greetings. And tonight we'll be bringing you five chapters from A Storm of Swords. That is Bran 3, John 5, Danny 4, Arya 8, and Jamie 6. That's chapters 40 to 44 of A Storm of Swords according to A Wiki of Ice and Fire. And a uh, quick reminder, we always say this, uh, but we are spoiler-free. Until the end of the podcast, we have one segment at the end called Davos After Dark, uh, which will get into all sorts of theories and speculation and stuff that uh, you wouldn't know about if you're reading along at our pace. So if you are, uh, just jump off. Uh, we'll warn you at that point, just jump off so you don't get spoiled. Uh, also, uh, if you want to contact us to suggest topics or uh, just pick our brain or tell us we're wrong or right or you know whatever... Reach out to us. We've got lots of activity on the, the the Twitter, especially with the March Madness tournament we got going on, Song of Madness. Holy crap. Lots of lots of feedback. It's been so much fun to interact with you guys. Mm-hmm. So that's at Davos Fingers. We got Twitter uh, at Davos Fingers. We got email, wearedavosfingers at gmail.com. We got Facebook. You can find us and like us there. Uh, and also um, you can find us on our, on our Tumblr site, davosfingers.com. Also, apologies to... George's fans, I complained last time about getting no emails. We got a flood of emails, which have been awesome. Uh, That's what you wanted all along. You knew exactly what you were doing. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> Although maybe I need to scream for mercy now because it's been a lot. But it's been uh, great. Yeah. yeah, it's been so much fun. We got a great one today, or was it yesterday? The one from Devin, I think his yes. name is. Devin's email was fantastic. Yeah. Just, just real quick, one of my favorite things to hear from listeners, from you guys, friends of the program, is that it feels like a conversation with friends. Yeah. Devin said it in his email. Other people have said it. And that was like the the reason we hold, we started this whole podcast, right, is we're three friends who wanted to talk about books we love and record ourselves doing it. We had like no delusions of grandeur or like things we end up millionaires or something. We just wanted to sit and talk about the books we love. So to hear that from you guys, I mean, we love any compliment you, you fling our way, but uh, that's particularly gratifying for me. Well, we are you. though millionaires. You guys don't yeah. know it, but every oh, time man, you we're click, it in. well, Brooke is. I I haven't <laughs> seen anything yet. Oh well, it's all filtering to my account. Every I don't know if you guys know this, but every time you click on listen, uh, we get pennies from your bank accounts. What? Um, <laughs> what? Yeah, I haven't even seen now. any of the proceeds from the album sales yet. I don't know where they're going. Oh, <laughs> well, now I do. Now you know. And knowing is one eighth of the battle. Uh, okay. Uh, just a quick, a quick reminder. Uh, unless you're living under a rock, you know that uh, Daredevil season two came out. Uh, it's oh, awesome. Oh my gosh! I just finished it, guys. You finished it? I just started it. I'm one episode in. <laughs> Holy cow. I loved it so much. But also a little more under the radar, I, I think it was a little more under the radar, was uh, AKA Jessica Jones, uh, which which has been out for six months or eight months or something. I feel like it got a ton of popularity or, or press when it was released. It did, yeah, but welcome, it kind of... Welcome to that party, Scad. Well, I finished it, yeah. Well, I started it a long time ago, but I finished it this week because I committed myself to finishing Jessica Jones before I started Daredevil again. And when Daredevil came out, I'm like, oh shit, I got to do this. Uh, so I, I watched a lot of Jessica Jones in the last couple of weeks and, uh, it's really, it's really good. I don't think it's as good as Daredevil, but it's really, really good. It's very fantastic. So I recommend that if you're not watching AKA Jessica Jones, check that out. Uh, and all, all, obviously I think all three of us recommend Daredevil. Oh my gosh. For sure. Oh. 
it, it got a little bit too much with the fight scenes in season two. Like I was just like fast. There was a lot of fighting. There's a there was, lot of fight scene. If you're if you're was, into that fight scene and Daredevil the famous no cut no cut fight scene, um, you'll like season two. There's mm-hmm. like one of those in every episode now. <laughs> but the, the thing I love, I think we've talked about this before. I won't belabor it for too long, but the thing I love about the Daredevil fight scenes, and I saw it in the first episode, which is I've only seen one so far, is the way he fights. He's not a huge guy, right? And he's not, like, super strong or invincible or anything. So he just has to fling his body around with reckless abandon. And I just <laughs> love it. It's just, it's it's like, it's all in fighting, right? And, he's, and he always suffers the consequences oh, yeah. for and that style of fighting. Visible, too. the makeup guys are fantastic that, that make it very obvious that he is beaten to shit. And uh, anyway, love it. The guy who yeah, plays but... the Punisher in this in the series? Yeah, John Bernthal. Oh my gosh, of give Walking that Dead fame. guy some sort of award. Just fantastic portrayal of a character to, to, of who, to me, was always... And I don't read a lot of Punisher, but who always seemed a little one-dimensional. He really fleshed that guy out and and really made him awesome to me. One-dimensional, perhaps, but so committed to that one dimension, the Punisher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, man, he really breathes some life into that character. That was, And the writers, of course, do that, too. But, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, he was a great foil for for uh, Matt Murdock. Matt, Just, oh. Yeah. Mm, so yeah. great. And if you're a Walking Dead fan, that's Shane from The Walking Dead uh, coming in as the Punisher. Um, so yeah, check that out if you don't have enough incentive already. If you love Walking Dead, check it out. Because John Bernthal apparently is incredible, according to my castmates. Uh, okay, last last note. We've, we've already uh, mentioned a little bit. A Song of Madness, <laughs> the Davos Fingers version of March Madness. Um, it's, it's actually still going as of, as of this podcast. Uh, right. right now, well, the, right before we started podcasting, I looked and Arya was leading Jamie Lannister, fifty-two to forty-eight, making my heart happy. Um, she's she's down a little, fifty-one forty-nine, still in the lead though. Fifty-one forty-nine at the moment. Okay, so it is ten thirty p.m. Mountain Time. Yeah, we on got April second. So we got what, like seven hours left or nine hours left or something? Eight hours. There's three hundred and ninety-nine votes. Yeah, well done, folks. Yeah, so so mostly what we wanted to say is thanks for having fun with us. <laughs> for this humoring a, us. We, you yeah. got, we agonized. We, so first of all, Matt and I had this idea to do this years ago, before the podcast even before started. Before the podcast, yeah. I don't know where the fuck we thought we were going to get people to contribute before the podcast started <laughs> and, we, and anyone knew who, knew who we were. We were. Uh-huh. I think but, we actually thought it might be a publicity stunt to like launch the podcast from. Yeah. It could be a platform to get people to know who we were because we created this fantastic poll yeah. voting thing and then people would listen to our podcast after but we yeah, aren't exactly really deep far. thinkers no, we thought that not. was gonna work and we run out of steam quickly <laughs> and we did we were at, but but we had the original spreadsheet from way back then that we based on anyway probably way more detail than anyone wants but uh thanks for participating it's been a blast we're so glad we did it we debated for a long time like should we do it should we do it and you know is it going to be easy or hard and you know we don't have web skills to build our own website and make it really cool like the star wars one P.S. If you're not checking out the Star Wars one, it's pretty cool. Um, but uh, anyway, thanks for participating. Um, as as of the listening of this podcast, though, we will have a result. So, in you know, in respect to that, congratulations to our winner, Jaime Lannister, who overcame nearly insurmountable odds multiple times and shocked the world with the victory for the first 
the Song of Madness tournament. Who knows if we'll do it again, but congratulations. You are uh, a good winner, and you can wear the crown proudly. Mm. All right. R.I.P. Mm. Bron. Okay. Uh, Matt, your episode. My episode. Uh, so, Brookie, why don't you take us through Bran's third chapter? Five, six, seven. Brandon Stark, won't you come back down from that tower your mind's been flying from? Your legs don't work, but they don't really need to work when that third eye's showing you new ways unexplored. And the summer's gonna come, you know it's gonna come, summer's gonna come, and boy, you're gonna fly away. Prince Bran and his excruciatingly loyal court have made it out of the foothills and into the feral farmlands of the New Gift. They come across a long abandoned village with a great stone tower in the middle of this like small lake. And the Merlins on top of the tower had once been painted yellow. And so Bran recognizes the place as Queenstown, where Queen Alysanne had once spent the night with her dragon Silverwing. She had admired the work and bravery of the Night's Watch so much that she had doubled the size of the original gift from Brandon the Builder. So the gift is uh, farmland um, that, you know, the the bounty of the farmland, I guess, goes to the Black Brothers. It's maintained by the Black Brothers and also other settlers on the land, but uh, it's there to support the Watchers on the Wall. Uh, so to honor her, the townspeople had painted the top of the tower to look like her crown. Bran also knows there is an underwater causeway twisting its way through the lake to reach the tower. So that's where they camp for the night without Summer, who is off deer hunting. That night, they see the light of a single man lighting a fire in the half-rotten inn of the village. They avoid lighting their own fire at risk of being seen and settle for a half a cold roasted duck and riding out the approaching storm in the cold. Bran is unhappy about this, but Jojen, ever careful, gets his way. Like he always does. Who's the prince here? Hmm? Not Jojen. Bran has like a little internal breakdown over that. Anyways, the storm is a doozy, and Hodor goes nuts, screaming Hodor with every thunderclap. It would probably be just annoying and not life-threatening, but in the flashes of lightning, Mira spies too many men to count moving through the abandoned village towards the lone traveler and his fire. Mira and Jojen beg Bran to stop Hodor's hodoring, and finally Bran, in exasperation, basically wargs Hodor to settle him down. So goes into his brain just like he does with Summer, um, which is a huge violation and pretty much like shakes Bran. Like he knows that that, that is unnatural to be taking over another human. Uh, he doesn't tell Mira and Jojen what really happened. Instead, he wargs into Summer to get the haps on what's happening down in the village. Summer is okay, full of deer and out of sight, but there is the sharp stench of bloody fear in the air. And that's the end of the chapter. This was a really short one. It was. Morgan awesome. Hodor. Morgan yeah. Hodor. I, yeah. There's, I, I came up with their, their nickname. There's two, actually. When, oh, yeah? they're, when they're in Master Blaster mode, it's Hodran. When it's Bran warging <laughs> Hodor, it's Brodor. Brodor? Brodor. Brodor and Hodran. Brodor. Brodor. Yeah. Brodor. That's like Martin Brodor. 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 Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, this is uh, an interesting chapter because the next chapter after it actually it launches right into the same scene, which is a little right. bit rare in this series. Yeah, it's like reading a regular book. <laughs> the action continues next page. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're not in Slaver's Bay right now. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, not you can leave the you can leave the uh, time travel machine behind and just go right on to the next chapter with this one. It's nice. Yeah, am I crazy? Jojen and Mira have really dedicated themselves to Bran's success, I guess, of getting above the wall and uh, following Jojen's vision of, of, of finding whatever they need to find there. Yes. Um, is it They're all too in. much? Is it a little bit crazy? Is there something else going on? Like... You'd think there'd have to be these and kids. Cal- yeah. So much of this book is about of these books are about the POV character doing what's best for them. Right. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, they want to better themselves. And with Jojen and Mira, it appears to be all about Bran. Right. They want to help him find the three eyed crow mm-hmm. and how that benefits them. We don't really know. Um, we don't. But they yeah, seem to. Uh, Jojen does, does at least. Yeah, Mira is kind of along for the ride. And... Yeah, but yeah, their loyalty is very, very poignant. Yeah, yeah they I'm... seem to have no self-interest, no autonomy, and and that you know maybe they want to live their own lives. They're they're heirs to land um, down in the uh, ugh, what's it called the neck. They're heirs. The neck. They're heirs to watery swampland. But nonetheless, they have a responsibility Which to the people who are like. there. Yeah, true. And yeah, they and and they do like it. Well, are, are, Lots of places to hide. And I don't know if Howland has more kids. We Maybe don't know. He's got an older son. I don't think we know that made these two expendable. Yeah. Yeah, you go up north. We still got your big brother here. I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm with you, Brooke. I, w- I would say Mira is. I mean, add her to the Potter pain list. I mean, she's she's about as loyal as you get. It seems like she's all in just because she feels like she should be all in. And enthusiastically loyal, right? Right. Not like pod timid and stuff like that. Like she's, she's in it and she's happy to be in it for some reason. But Jojen, not that he's not in it, not that he's not supportive, but I feel like, you know, his fatalistic nature, it's almost like he feels like he, this is, he just has to be here. It's not a choice really. It's, it's just his journey and he doesn't have a choice but again you know still all credit to him i I suppose he could go against that feeling if he wanted to but he's he's all in Mm -hmm. yeah i like um you said hold on you said is it too much it sounded like you were implying like you were were trying to go somewhere with that i was just asking the question because it's it's like i i hear them call brand their prince i'm like nobody's making you call him the prince yeah like this is by your own volition that's a lot for a couple of kids. Well, to... they do owe it to him. He is a prince, I, and he's their, well, you know, liege lord. I, so. I've always felt that it was kind of like a just a kind of an endearing term. Mm. It was kind of just an endearing nickname that Mira called him. Yeah. Um, and but Neither Jojen, being yes, sassy. I didn't know. I think it's the first time that Jojen's actually called him like prince or my lord or something oh, like really? that. I don't remember exactly what the word was, but it stuck hmm. out to me. I didn't go back and verify, but. Uh, why would you that would not be in our nature (laughs) well to speak of podrick payne's club i would say davos is a card-carrying member and his 
um, motivations for his loyalty or that he feels he owes Stannis. Right. And so maybe mm. Mira and Jojen have, you know, something that hasn't been revealed to us that they owe the Stark family. Maybe. Right. That the Reeds no. owe the Starks. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe they're just loyal like you're supposed to be, which we see so many people that are not. Yeah, count me out. Yeah, yeah, I'm out. Uh, I'd like to feed my family long this way for them to go up north. And oh my goodness, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, Jojen though, <laughs> he's just got to be getting sick of it. Like, I feel like he teaches this lesson about being careful. Like, no, we can't go to the road. Like, no, we can't build a fire. No, like he teaches this lesson multiple times a chapter. Hundreds of miles all the way to the damn wall. He's got to be getting sick of it, right? <laughs> yeah, Probably. He's truly old man, young body. But in yeah, the same token, I'm getting kind of sick of Jojen, so he's insufferable. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's <laughs> difficult to contend with. I agree with you. Man, lighten up! He's a killjoy. Mira's been able to be so patient with him. I would have been like, dude, yeah. just shut up. Yeah. Like, Go smoke a chair or something. Go on the roof of, of the tower here. It's been noted on this podcast my stash. before smoke that I feel bit. like I need to relax and uh, get get a regular pot guy and that I have a huge stick up my ass. But even I think Jojen is too uptight. <laughs> so Stad would be Jojen. Oh, Brooke thanks. would be Mira. And I would be Hodor, probably. <laughs> Freaking Brand. out at the lightning. Who's Bran? Because otherwise we're just three lamos sitting around, which is kind of <laughs> close to the truth. Yeah, I was going to say that's wandering uh, about aimlessly. I'll, I'll that's tell you who Bran is. It's your wife, Scad. <laughs> I don't even know what to We're say. We're always that. ruining all her fun. Oh, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. No Netflix for you. Yeah. yeah. I like that Bran used the term hodoring, like literally yes. in this chapter. Yeah. No more hodoring. Hodor, quit, quit your hodoring. Yeah. <laughs> like Hodor would better <laughs> understand that. Yeah. Uh, do you think Hodor I, knows he's saying just Hodor, or do you think he's actually like in his mind he's saying words, kind of like I am Groot? Um, yeah, but he, I don't know. Does no one it's, understand? Yeah, it. it's it's weird. It's it's funny you should mention The Walking Dead earlier, uh, Scad, because I started rewatching the first season, oh. and the zombies can like climb fences and ladders and pick things up in the they first can? season. Yeah. Yeah, watch like the pilot and stuff. You're going to be like, that's not right. Because, um, sorry, Matt, this will be quick. Eventually, they just become <laughs> like walking, biting, just corpses. Just well, walking, it's... And, walking and biting. That's it. Ordering around. It's, it's been noted that as the time continues, the zombies kind of get weaker. Like a zombie on day one is stronger than they are on day 365. But they didn't lose motor skills or like intelligence to climb yeah. things that's bad no, this and is, that this never happened in the comics either pre-planned degradation of zombies and this that's... is just like they decided to make the zombies less powerful which is odd, kind of a, that's kind of, of a thing of source with, material at that yeah, point television uh series is that first season always seems to be quite different from yeah, you got to excuse when you go back and yeah. when you go back in hindsight and rewatch stuff, the continuity and stuff is often. Oh yeah, actually, like, except like, in Game of Thrones, not that we want to talk about that shit. Any series will do the same thing. Yeah, except yeah. in Game of Thrones. Well, I was, no, because I Game of Thrones was super, super close to the book in the first season, and yeah. after that, they Another just started burying. Yeah. 
I went back and watched Parks and Rec season one, and I almost don't like it. Oh, did it vary from the source material a lot? Oh, yeah. yeah. Andy's a jerk. He's not Andy's, lovable He's at like all. a jerk. Ron Swanson's not nearly as Ron Swanson-y as he <laughs> is later. Oh, I can't believe I'm about to admit this, but occasionally I watch uh, reruns of Cougar Town. Scott. <laughs> and Scott. No, because here's the thing. If you watched like the first, I don't even know how long, because I didn't watch all of them or anything, but I caught like the first episode of maybe a couple of the first five or something, but... Their mess, like their concept early on, was like Cougar Town. It's a it's a a town of a bunch of old women going after young men, and they quickly realized that it was a garbage concept, but just rallied around the cast they had, and made it a show that's completely different. Right, it's like not it even close to the same concept. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway. Okay, so where I was going with that is mm. that um, maybe Hodor has some intelligence, but then it's just like, depending on George's mood, <laughs> <laughs> is more or less. It, it seems to me like he's not expecting people to understand. Uh-huh. Which maybe it's just been beaten into him that people aren't going to understand, so he doesn't expect it anymore. Yeah, it's but... not like he's grabbing him by the shoulders and being like, Hodor, 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 Hodor. yeah, why don't you understand it's me, Hodor? Just like, he just yeah. kind of mumbles it to himself. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he does ask it in question, though, and, like, sings it to himself. Yeah. So, yeah. anyway, <laughs> let's, let's, we can on. get really lost down the rabbit hole yeah. of Hodor's mental it's state. Listeners. Loyal listeners, you've never heard anyone go on about what does Hoder mean as much as the Davos fingers. You're welcome. <laughs> that and that stupid crow corn. <laughs> hey, that's... You know what? Time will tell on that one. Yeah, it will. And Okay. okay. Until then, I'm going to be pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a Professor Scad. Do you want it? Yeah. All right. I, I just... I love this idea of the causeway, right? That uh, bends around and back and forth and... Um, you know, they, they mentioned in there, like any, but any attacking fo- force would have to wind around and be susceptible to arrow fire for like a long time. Get wet were... pants. What's that? And wet, wet pants, pants. Right. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, would give some of them the opportunity to take a leak without being noticed. But so I, I was like, did, did he just invent this or do these exist or, you know, what kind of like the river on, uh, research I did a, a while ago. And there are, there are some of these, uh, notably, uh, Par- uh, Parisian or, or, or French accent, I suppose. Mont-Saint-Michel. And English accent, St. Michael's Mount. Which sound <laughs> the same. They're kind of like sister castles in France and England across the channel from one another. And uh, they have they have causeways that at higher tides like wash you out. So it's not like you couldn't get there during low tide. But when high tide comes in, if you're assailing a wall, like you're going to be swept away. Uh, or, you know, have to deal with this water coming in. Uh, just a little bit of information on uh, Mont Saint-Michel. It's it's in a unique position on an island, just 600 meters from land. Again, at low tide you can get there, uh, but defensible when the incoming tide comes in, drives off would-be assailants. Uh, it would remained unconquered during the Hundred Years' War, and similar, similarly, the St. Michael's Mount also um, faced off against its government several times and held up. Um, mm. So pretty cool. These things actually exist, and... Yeah, they're they're used um, effectively, kind of like this small uh, queen's crown might be, might have been. Fun okay. fact: I have been to Mont Saint Michel on a tour bus, and they couldn't Whoa. keep us out. <laughs> they could not keep you out. It must <laughs> yeah. have been a tour bus that got there during low tide. 
it did. <laughs> it's really beautiful. There's like um, uh, not a cathedral, place for monks on there. Yes, correct. Monastery. Yeah, it's, it's an abbey. Monastery. Now, yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Cool. The only well, downside well, to something like that is it's impregnable, basically. But uh, it would be easy to like put under siege, right? So if you, sure. you'd have to have a lot of uh storage for supplies and stuff like that to be yeah. able to hunker down if needed but... although onion knight style both of these do their backs uh are to the ocean so they, oh, they would nice. have sea access you unless, get a davos over there blockaded mm. that yeah they could mm-hmm. yeah. lots of fish fry ups fish fry <laughs> yep indeed anyway i thought it was cool. over the side of the wall check them out mont saint michel and saint michael's mount uh pretty cool yeah Thanks, and dude. brooke has already checked them out i did not know that just one. World yeah. Travel. Brooke can get in. Yep. What about this uh, uh it scared him stuff about warging Hoder? Should he be scared? He seemed he was kind of scared by it, right? I think he should be very scared. I think mm-hmm. he's right to be very scared about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean I mean, you talk about violation. Uh, the mind is something that, you know, no matter what is done to you, you still have the privacy of your own mind, right? And for someone to be able to violate that and get in there, that's very dangerous and very scary to me. Yeah. Not to get us down a dark path, but, you know. I feel like next you're going to launch into what a terrible dark place your mind is and everybody just stay out. (laughs) I thought that's where you were going with that. You haven't seen what I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) It's being uh, your own on. protection. Yeah, Anything that's else? really all I got. Should we continue on with this whole story then? Yerp. All right. Well, I've got John's chapter, so here we go. May I point out, someone else pointed this out on Twitter, our friend Richard did, uh, that this is the 41st episode that we've done. This is the 41st chapter of A Storm of Swords. What? And my favorite song by the Dave Matthews Band is called number 41 oh, you so i will be putting this in there somewhere and shut your mouth Brooke. <laughs> i've never actually heard that song i will look it up or it i will listen to the podcast beautiful song well we'll only get a snip of it on my cast but go check it out I'll I'll email you something. I'll email you the best live version. He's got other songs that are just name numbers, doesn't he? What have I done? If he he ever can't uh, think up a good song title, he just numbers it. Isn't there like a number 34 on Under the Table? There's a number 34. There's a number 36. There's Mm -hmm. a number 40. There's a number 27. uh, (laughs) Number 41 is their best. It's cool. I flashed my credential card. It's good. We can move on. Okay. So, John... Where we're going up north where the winter's cold And the icicles bloom like the bluest rose We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf He's John Snow I, uh, I totally had to go back and remind myself why John and Co. went over the wall in the first place. I was so wrapped up in them getting over the wall, I forgot why they were going over. And of course, it's to take the uh, Bowen Marsh-led Castle, back, Castle Black from the rear. So we're not doing phrasing anymore, where there are virtually no defenses. We are always doing phrasing. That was there a no great Archer impression. 
Do it again. Do it again. So are we not doing phrasing anymore? <laughs> I'm working on it. Okay. By the way, has there working. ever been a voice actor who has looked more unlike his character than H. John Benjamin? Yeah, H. John Benjamin. Yeah, he looks <laughs> he looks more like the can of beans he portrays in Wet Hot American Summer than sure. he does like Archer. <laughs> anyways why would there need to be defenses right no one's going to attack them from the south hence um the wildlings uh advancing that tactic so to avoid the wandering eyes of patrols walking along the wall stir the magnar has his raiding partner take take the long way around gimli huh going clear south down into brandon's gift or the new gift to make a long loop from where they climbed the wall between the abandoned castles of gray garden stone door all the way back up to Castle Black. And guys, according to the Galenix map, this is a pre- pretty significant trip. I mean, just from if they would have walked along the wall from Greyguard to Castle Black, it would be like 150 miles just to take a straight line. And they're doing this big, long loop that, to get there. So this is a significant jaunt through, mm. uh, through the north. <laughs> Um, so as they hike through the grassy abandoned fields of the gift, Egret and John get into another Egret and John argument as they do about everything. These guys are either screwing or fighting all the time, uh, which does sound like a couple relationships I know of. Thankfully, not my own. Uh, no, I mean, they argue. What did about... I tell you guys? Not to talk about our relationships on the podcast. Sorry, Brooke. <laughs> Just. No, Chastise. talk about your relationships. Don't joke about your sex lives. <laughs> I didn't. I said it's not my own at all. <laughs> it was the I mean, pregnant pause the joke. that uh, was the problem. <laughs> Anyways, I'm going to continue now. These guys argue about everything. The size of castles, farmers fleeing the gift to escape raiders versus staying and fighting, who the land should belong to in the first place, what the raiders are stealing, how to treat a husband, how husbands should smell. Um, she agrees with Nick Offerman, by the way. I don't know if you guys have seen that clip of his Conan interview where he talks about manscaping and how he thinks it's an abomination of the English language and that men should maintain a hot musk down there that you can almost taste. And then, of course, the third way is uh, is wearing a, a proud, uh, bristling, shining, pubic thicket. Um, <laughs> as Mother Nature intended. Right. I mean, I know you guys are on board with that. Well, we live in an era where a lot of men now manscape. An abomination of the English language. Uh, so Offerman agrees with the Greet. Uh, the definition of a wife or yeah, he says women should do the same. So, <laughs> oh, but of course the conversation ends with them kissing it out in front of everybody as they do. So here we find that John finds himself in more and more of a pickle because you see, he still knows that he needs to eventually escape this raiding party and return to Castle Black to warn his brothers of the impending attack. But every day he spends with the wildlings, he comes to like them that much more, despite his best attempts at uh, staying emotionally distant. Plus, you know, he's getting nooky. So, but this is where it gets cool. 
you see, normally we, like Brooke said, and, and Scott, you commented on it too, we only get events in A Song of Ice and Fire from a single point of view. In this case, we get a rare glimpse into two POVs in the same place, John and Bran. Um, we see that there's a storm approaching, uh, as was mentioned in Bran's chapter. Also, the party descends to bunk down into an abandoned village, the same one where Bran went. Um, they're sitting beside a lake. Uh, and out in the middle of the lake, we've got that stone round tower with the gold painted top. That's right. Jon Snow right now is within seeing distance of his little half-brother Bran, and neither of them know it. It's so frustrating for the reader. So as they approach that abandoned inn, they come upon a single old man who's built a fire and seem to have the same idea in mind as them to just rest, stay dry, and wait out the storm. And gosh, it's tragic that of all the places he could have chosen, he chose that place on that night because that little fire he built was about to cost him his life. After apprehending the man, Steer commands John to once again prove his faithfulness by killing the man. And John hesitates. He knows the man is innocent and that killing him would amount to murder. But what would happen if he doesn't do the deed? Like, will his cover be blown? Is it worth it? I mean, the guy is old and he's as good as dead anyway now that he's been captured. If John doesn't kill him, one of the other wildlings will. Nevertheless, the better angels of John's nature prevail and he refuses to make the kill. And angry at this, Agreet grabs a knife and does the work herself, slitting the old man's throat. Uh, scant seconds later, lightning flashes from the night sky and it coming so close as to actually hit the top of the tower on the lake. And in that moment, with everyone temporarily night blind from a lightning flash, as George says in a brilliant line, death leapt down amongst them. A, hurdle, a hurtling, snarling shadow on four legs goes barreling through the party, tearing throats and wreaking havoc. And in that split second, John thinks it's ghost. Until he notices the animal, too big to be a normal wolf, is actually gray. And what gray big wolf do we know is currently prowling around outside the tower? Yeah, we know. Mm -hmm. John doesn't think that much more about it and instead springs into action. He cuts down the men in his path and in a smooth motion that he barely notices himself doing, he mounts a horse and takes off. Heedless of direction or obstacles in his path, he just knows that he's got to get distance between himself and the raiders. Kind of reminds me of Arya trying to escape the Brotherhood. Uh, only in this instance, John manages to escape. So hours later, John decides to stop. He decides it's safe. And he noticed, and noticing a throbbing pain in his, in his thigh, which must have only been masked before by the adrenaline rush he was undoubtedly experiencing, John notes that he's been shot in the leg with an arrow. He, in intense pain as he removes the arrow and lays there, trying to staunch the bleeding, John finds it queerly lucky that the arrow hit him and not the horse, which certainly would have foiled his escape. And that's where the chapter ends with him too tired and pained to even think about what had just happened. Um, he eventually remounts the horse and uh, heads, as he terms it, he heads home. So end of chapter. Awesome. That was so cool. You know, Arya might have made it away from the Brotherhood if none of them had horses, which is the situation John's in. Mm-hmm. Uh, she crazy. had to do with Harwin. Master son, master of horses, son Hullen, in uh, broad daylight. In too. broad daylight with horses. Yeah. Still, yeah, he gets away. Uh, it, you know, an opportunity he's been looking on, looking at, or, or looking for since joining them, basically. Right? How can I get away from here? It's just really cool how John is sitting there debating about how he would do this and how hard it's going to be to leave the wildlings and stuff. But then, in that moment. 
in that split second he was still able to act. And I yep. found that was really cool. They even and George used some symbolism uh, with John's sword. Um, I don't know if you guys, if you guys noticed it. It said when he was about to kill the the old man, it said Longclaw was heavy when he had to pull. It had never felt heavier when he drew Longclaw to kill that man. But uh, he describes it as feather light when he's making his escape, when he's uh, slashing at the wildlings to get to the oh, horse. Good pickup. Um, mm. So even as hard as it was and how hard he was debating it, in that moment he was still able to revert back to Jon Snow, Brother of the Night's Watch, and get out of there without even thinking. Here's the thing about Jon Snow. And we had somebody during the epic multi-day overtime oh my gosh, uh, battle yeah. in A Song of Madness. A uh, lot of mud flinging. Some of our listeners have no idea what I'm talking about. But they faced off uh, in our March Madness uh, tourney. And there was, yeah, there was a reason why mud flinging. But one guy just said, I want to know if people that like John even know why they like him. This is why we like him. Yep. He's a man of principle. He's a man that knows what he stands for. And I shouldn't even say man, he's a boy. But but he's a boy who's become a man. And he knows what he stands for, and he actually stands for it. He doesn't just say he knows what he stands for and then turn on it. He knows what he stands for, and he does it. And that's why we love him. And he makes mistakes along the way, too. Sure. You know, he doesn't do it perfectly. And I think that makes me almost love him more is as a man who's also made his fair share of mistakes. Um, I, I feel the same way, and so he's very relatable to me. And a lot of people say he's not relatable. Um, I find him to be very relatable, especially in this book. And he's a bastard. He's a bastard. We get one of those moments in this chapter. I'm a bastard. I'm I'll a never bastard. have Winterfell. <laughs> we get one of those. Um, it makes me wonder what would have happened if Bran and Co. had actually been in the village. Like, would have the same? Would the would the same conflict had come into play where um, they they would have made John kill his own brother? I'm well. Or would have Summer saved the day earlier? As much as I love John, an actor he is not. I'm pretty sure there is (laughs) no way he would have been able to hide the fact that he knew this person. Mm. It would have been very interesting. It's a That's a fun what-if. Yeah, Com- really comics is. do what-if issues all the time. That would be a fun what-if issue. Mm-hmm. Well, if he'd been like, holy crap, Bran, and then he'd had to explain who Bran was yeah. and to everybody else, and then everybody else was like, oh, well, you know, north of the wall, we kill cripples, yeah. so we're just <laughs> yeah. going to do you a little favor here Yeah, and put this boy out of his misery. Yeah. Or well, not only they... that, but he's Eddard Stark's son, and and not all the wildlings know who Eddard is, but enough do that. Oh yeah, I think they know that that, that they know of Winterfell probably at least, and that yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, not, good point. Winterfell's not friendly to wildlings, probably. I think yeah. No matter what, John would have had tried to escape with Bran yeah. and Bran's entourage, his court, and they would have all um, been massacred. Yeah, you can't yeah. escape with four people. Four and a half, plus a wolf, whatever it is. One of them being Hodor. Yeah. You're not putting him on a horse, probably. Yeah, Hodor, well, there are no horses, but Hodor doesn't exactly roll a high stealth check. I mean, that, that dude is, um, you know. Leave Hodor. Sorry, buddy. Everyone yeah. else, come with me. Yeah. <laughs> he could be a big Hodoring Aww. distraction. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, Here, Hodor, and... take your sword, swing it around. Run, everybody! Yeah. You brought up, uh, you made a point of it in your summary, Matt, how far south they come. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, I think you were implying that in your summary, but they've gone way, way out of their way to not be seen by the wall. You can't even see the wall from where they are. Yep. It seems excessive. It seems like, uh, the seems, only reason. Seems like let's drive the plot misty. forward stuff. Yeah. yeah, the only thing that I could think of as to why they do it is the villages are in the new gift and maybe they were reloading Looking on supplies, supplies or something yeah. like that. There's no, as I understood it, Brandon's gift was originally farmed and maintained by men of the watch, actual night's watchmen, uh, who I don't know if they like commuted down there to do the farming or whatever, or if they actually lived down there. Yeah. But the new gift is where they actually had villages and people actually just lived there and, and of course paid their taxes and goods to the wall. But it was it was non Night's Watchmen who lived in the new gift. So maybe they were going down there to get some to kind of reload. But but enough of them it's have still been over the wall ways. and been stealing that they should know that there's nothing really there for them, right? And through and uh, at least in the map I'm looking at, I'm looking at my map from the lands of ice and fire, that big old unwieldy map. Yeah, look at um, that too. Uh, it's through forest that they have to walk through a lot of it, so it's not even big open land. They trek in through the woods and everything. Yeah, if I remember, I looked at the same map. Queen's Crown is uh, in the upper third of the New Gift, if I remember right. Right, so almost at the border. Yeah. yeah, but still, it seems like a long way to go. They could have just mm-hmm. traveled a day or two. <laughs> I mean, they, they traveled a week to get this far on foot, right? It just seems excessive. It's a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Would you uh would you think of Agreet and John's differences of opinion? No. Is it just old at this point? Yeah. Gets cumbersome. It's, it's not old at all to me. Um all that stuff with Agreet and John is interesting. I mean just the how far apart the worlds of wildlings and kneelers really are. Mm-hmm. How, how how amazingly different they can see the same thing. John sees a hold fast that is not impressive at all. And to greet, it's, you know, one of the seven wonders of the world, right? Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And uh, yeah, I, it's not boring to me at all. And yet there, through it all, there's this running theme of their devotion to each other. You yep. know, John is throughout this thinking about how much he'd love to take a greet to Winterfell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Imagine the bastard taking his wildling girlfriend to Winterfell, how yep. that would go. Yep. <laughs> Um, as he knows it anyways. We know Winterfell's burned, but for all he knows, everything's still good there. No, wait. He heard that it burned, right? No, he was no, already he beyond the wall. He, he doesn't, doesn't know. know at all. Yeah, yeah, he hasn't heard that. And Agreet's still like, maybe we can live in this tower one day and argue and screw some more. <laughs> <laughs> I I think uh, one thing to note, too, uh, I think Agreet's lack of understanding of the size of the castles, it's one of them... Uh, fancy metaphor thingies for how the wildlings just they don't understand the size and scope of the lands beyond the wall Mm -hmm. beyond the wall from their perspective sure Um, they don't understand the scope at all they don't they don't get that even with how many wildlings do they have Fifty thousand something they don't understand I, that they have no chance of winning any sort of right. war. Right? She's like, Mance, Mance will be, Mance will be a great leader. 
and and the fact that south she, of the wall, and John's like, no, no, no it's not going to work for you. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a metaphor, right? It, like you sure. don't understand Very that good. this holdfast is tiny mm-hmm. compared to other things in this world, and it, it's yeah, it's the same thing. Your your band is impressive and loyal, and they fight hard, but you have no shot. I still felt John was dismissive of her views instead of trying to it's make her understand stubborn. or listening, yeah, or, or or appreciating, you know, the the situation the wildlings were already in, yeah, and why she empathy. would see it like that, yeah. She's but... equally stubborn. I would condemn. <laughs> True. Yeah, they're both stubborn. I give you a mean, Brooke. Uh, like, he, yeah, he he's not he's not considering that she could be right or anything. Right. Or even, yeah. or even that her perspective is valid. He's, he's just like no. He he's stating that it's naive. Yeah, he's like, mm-hmm. oh, I keep yeah. on forgetting how wild you are. Mm, that's adorable. Yeah, but it's not great. I mean, for a relationship, it's awful. But he's not wrong. Let's be honest. Let's call it like it is. They're completely un unweaponized for a battle that they're trying to fight. You know, like from a technology perspective. They don't have the numbers. They don't fight in any sort of way that's going to give them success. He's right. I mean, you know, truth is an absolute defense. To them, the mission is as far as get over the wall. They really have no idea beyond that, right? Yeah. As much as they know, (laughs) they get over the wall and there's like 100 yards and then the sea. And that's all of the south, right? They have no idea. So, yeah. With or without you. That's John and Agree right now. With or without you. Joshua Tree. That's all I really got on this chapter. Does anyone else have anything? Um, I, the only other thing of real value I had is just he, he mentions that he has no sense of ghost anymore. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, and they're pretty far away at this point. But I just think it's give it's interesting given what we've seen with Arya in the Riverlands and how she seems to have connected with Nymeria a little bit, or what we presume is Nymeria. Yeah, we think might be her. That proximity seems to matter. Or, or or maybe it's focus that, that that Ari is more focused on it. I don't I don't know, but it seems like a proximity thing at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know if we knew that before. Yeah, that's a good point. Let us not forget Ghost. Wonder what he's doing right now. Yeah, man, he's mm-hmm. feeding on some carcass. Hopefully, go Ghost. Just relax and taking it easy for a bit. Yeah, Brookie, you got anything else? No, I'm good. Aight, Danny it up. Yep, Danny. Who's got Danny? Scott? I do. Okay. I'm all up in the Danny chapter. Hmm. That didn't... Edit that out. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) At least I added the word chapter. Uh, Okay. Silver hair and purple eyes always on the go. Kicking it with the dragon kids and Joe Rathie. She knows just where she gotta go and won't be Tarion. Look how Westerosa comes the nearest Targaryen. She sits on her horse and evaluates the enemy. 500 Stormcrows, 500 Second Sons, two sellsword companies, and 4,000 bed slaves with swords. They can easily be defeated, it's agreed. Cool. 
So what the Dilio? Well, the Dilly B, that winning the battle won't actually mean winning the city. They're firmly inside their walls, and Danny kind of at this point lacks good methods for sieging. So she invites the enemy in, leaders of the Stormcrows, the Second Sons, leaders of the Yunkai, one at a time to discuss the coming battle. In the interim, she consults uh, a general of the Unsullied. Grey Worm is his name. Uh, he affirms that victory will be had, as I've kind of mentioned, they all agree. She tells him to recruit others to her cause instead of killing them all, and invites him to her tent as well for all these meetings with the Yunkai and the Sellswords. A bit of an update on Danny's army real quick. So, tens of thousands from Astapor, free folk. Uh, she calls them locusts in sandals, which means they just walk and eat. <laughs> they don't, aren't providing a whole lot of value to her. She has 35 or so, that's right, 35, not 3,500 or anything like that. 35 Dothraki horse. Scouts and outriders is how she uses them. These are the people that basically saw her birth dragons and have stuck around. She has 8,000 or so qualified on Sully that she just bought. Or stole, or however you want to look at that transaction that just went down. Danny meets with the leaders of the Stormcrows and Second Sons independently. Essentially, she tries, she tries to flatter them, insult, bribe, threaten them all to join her. None of it works. She gives both until the morning to give their response to her offer of surrender and come over to her side, even giving the Titan's Bastard, the leader of the Second Sons, a wagon of wine for his men to help think it over. Then the Yukai come around, uh, the leaders of the Yukai, similar story, bribes, threats, they're unmoved. They then threaten her back, try to bribe her. In the end, there's one more master threat from Danny. You have three days to release all your slaves with food and provisions. Do that, and we won't kill all of you. This is backed by Drogon's flame, <laughs> right at the guy's Tokar. It impressed him enough to cause some soiled drawers, uh, but they still don't agree, and they kind of walk away angry. On the heels of all those discussions, Danny then immediately summons all her blood, blood riders to plan the attack for that night. A sphincter says, what? You said they'd have until tomorrow. In the words of Megadeth, take no prisoners, take no shit. Take no prisoners! Take no shit! They will attack by night from three sides, before even giving these people the night to consider, as she promised. But before the battle can get started, Dario... One of the three Stormcrow leaders shows back up with the heads of his co-leaders and the promise that the Stormcrows and he himself are hers. Also, side note, Danny is Twitterpated. And I gotta admit, he sounds handsome. Danny feels certain about the night's plans with the Stormcrows in tow, even more certain than she was before. Jorah's not a fan, though. He calls it a bad idea to trust Dario, Dario and Danny loses it on him. I'll read a little quick bit. About time. Yeah. You say it every day. Pyat Pri's a liar, Zaro's a schemer, Belwas a braggart, Arston an assassin. Do you think I'm still some virgin girl that I cannot hear the words behind the words? You've been a better friend to me than any I've known, a better brother than Viserys ever was. You were the first of my Queen's Guard, the commander of my army, my most valued counselor, my good right hand. I honor and respect and cherish you, but I do not desire you, Jorah Mormont, and I am weary of your trying to push every other man in the world away from me, so I must needs rely on you and you alone. It will not serve, and it will not make me love you any better. Ooh. Mike dropped. Ooh. <clears throat> yeah, Ooh, that hurts. Intense. Ooh. So, uh, having done that, there's nothing to do now but wait. The battle's going to ensue. She's just got to wait and see what the results are. But to calm her nerves, she gets story time from Arston. Uh, and guess what? It's about Rhaegar again. She's kind of obsessed about this. Yay. Um 
So Arston kind of says some things we already know. Rhaegar did everything well. Music, scholarly pursuits, militarily. Uh, but he lacked passion for tourneys. He did win one, though, the biggest of all. Danny kind of already knows about that, the, the, the tourney at Hall. But she begs for more details. Why crown Lyanna when his wife was there? Arston doesn't know, but it was not in Rhaegar to be happy, he intimates. He was melancholy. He had a sense of doom. Born with that doom from Summerhall. He loved to go there with his harp and write music. Triple B, on the other hand, had no culture. No love for anything but the body. Sure, kick, kick him when he's six feet down. Jorah interrupts the story, just when it was getting good. A dozen lost, 200 killed, thousands of captives, a resounding victory. Boom. Danny's party marches to the walls. They wait uh, there until the morning of the third day. Then the slaves emerge by the thousands, and slowly... And in multiple languages, they start chanting mother over and over. Now, for someone that has been prophesied to have no children ever, this grabs Danny by the goddamned heartstrings. She rides into them as they grasp for just a feel of their new deity slash parent. Her hair streaming behind her, her horse galloping, and the crowd parting before her. She exults in her progeny as they celebrate their new Misa. And the chapter ends. Hmm. Well summarized. Thank you. Yeah. I got exciting. Yeah. I do what I can. So, uh, the first we've seen of Danny is a commander, right? She kind of did. A battle commander. Look at her. Bang up job. Holy yeah. Look crap. at her. Yeah. She pulled on the big girl pants, and um, man, she rocked this thing. Yeah. Misleading totally the imagine. enemy, using your resources well, getting the other side to turn coat. I mean, pretty impressive. I can totally imagine this playing out like on on screen or something, not on HBO, but maybe something better. Uh, her like, like, here's what we're gonna do, guys. And Arstin and Jorah and everyone's got this skeptical look on her fa- on their faces, like, oh, here we go, okay, humor, let her let her talk her thing, and then we'll plan the real battle, mm-hmm. you know, after she leaves. But and then as she's talking, you like close up on their faces, and their faces kind of <laughs> go from skeptical to like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> surprise okay. to maybe this could work <laughs> yeah <laughs> then eventually smiling it's pretty cool yeah it is pretty cool yeah and and the way that she handled jora too is it just another oh example of her maturity like she really just laid it out for him she was totally honest didn't didn't like oh jora you're really cute but there was just... no but yeah, there was no buzz. Yeah. It was pretty clear. Yeah. Was my tone a little better this time, Brooke? The last time I tried to do Danny, you uh, you quibbled a little bit. Did I? Oh, I don't remember, but I don't doubt it. Yeah, You're, yeah, we're quibblers. Uh, <laughs> it was fine. It was it was great. All right. Uh, uh, and again, on the maturity note, just to add Brooke to what you're saying, she's just kind of you know with Jorah. She kept her composure and just laid it on the line with all of these captains coming to her tent and and discussing she just kept total composure they're calling her whore you know they're calling you know just a useless woman all these all these insults just completely keeping her composure just like she did in astapor when she was pretending she didn't speak the language yeah just fully in control i mentioned how how john isn't an actor an actor well danny is totally an actress yeah fully in control 
she can fake it till she makes it until she's literally making it. Yeah. It's fantastic. And I wonder if what is giving her all this confidence is just knowing her heritage because she doesn't have a lot of life experience to fall back on, right? So it's got to be the bravado of mm. being the mother of dragons, of being a Targaryen, of yeah. being, you know, prophesied to rule the world or, you know, whatever. I had a lot of... Go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. No, well, you go ahead. Well, well, on that, I, I didn't even think of that, Brooke, until just now. Yeah, like, very cool. Like, in, in previous chapters, when she's drawn on that history of her family and, like, that, that inner dragon strength, it's mm-hmm. been noted in her thoughts. It's been brought to the table, right? Mm. They don't bring it up here, really, unless I've forgotten. But, yeah, it's almost like it's just, instead of something that she's had to actively bring up from the depths and project, now it's just a part of her, maybe. Now she, yeah, she is capable, yeah. not just believing herself capable. Right. Or yeah, making have... herself believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of that either, Brooke. Good point. Uh, and it made me think that when she really seemed to come into her own with the Astapor stuff, and now here is after Arston came in and really started filling her in on a lot of the details mm-hmm. of Rhaegar and stuff. And I wonder if that really helped uh, boost her confidence that much more, especially with him saying, you remind me of him and all of that. Mm. It's uh, mm. maybe that maybe helped a little bit. Yeah. You should take up the loot, Danny, because I bet you'd be a natural. Yeah. Cause he was <laughs> pretty amazing. His songs were really good. <laughs> Man, Apparently they were. I kind of just, have you ever got to the point with Rhaegar where you're like, I'm sorry. I don't believe all this crap. Yeah, this is way too good to be it's true. It's way too good to be true. He's good at everything. <laughs> what is he, Oberyn Martell? People like you and I who aren't good at everything, Scott, hate people like that just naturally. So it's probably just us. But <laughs> I don't hate him. I just don't believe it. There's a word for that in like the fandom, right? It's it's called a Mary Sue or a Mary Stew. Yeah. It's a guy. Yeah. And it's the author just embodying a character with everything that they want to be. Yeah. Like an absolute perfection, can do no wrong, physical specimen, yeah. uh, overachiever. <laughs> yeah, they, they accused, they accused <laughs> Ray of that a lot in Force Awakens, right? That, oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She got a lot really? she got a lot of that play in articles and stuff all over the place. Yeah. Huh. Huh. I don't see that so much. Okay. This might seem like an odd comparison, but I just thought of it as I was during this preparation for this podcast. I happened to be reading about another celebrity who who was cut down in his prime. This one real life, not fictional. And it made me think of Rhaegar, and that was Kurt Cobain. Just with Arston saying, I'm not certain it was in Rhaegar to be happy. He always had this sense of melancholy, mm. kind of born in grief and everything. And I was reading all this. I somehow went down a Kurt Cobain rabbit hole. I'm not a huge Nirvana fan. I respect Kurt and Nirvana immensely for what they they did uh, with their band and their music and the time period they did it in. Um, but uh, it just made me think of him. There was this one quote from one thing I was reading and is saying, but for Kurt... I think it was Dave Grohl that said this. It didn't matter that other people loved him. He simply didn't love himself enough, and he could never love himself enough. And I don't know, that kind of just made me that sense of melancholy and stuff from an ultra-talented person. Made me kind of think of, uh, of Rhaegar. I wish I was like you In the Everything is my fault. So 
I don't know. Maybe it's a terrible comparison, but no, it's it's a good comparison actually. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, one for sure. I, I we do we just don't know enough about Rhaegar. We need right. a POV from him to know what he really thought. I mean, you know, you you, you have a sense. To, I well, I have a sense of, um, you know, that he he had a bit of hubris to him. You know, he felt like he early on in his life he felt like he was the prince that was promised. To believe something like that about yourself, you got to feel pretty good about yourself. But at the same time, yeah, he kind of he was within himself a lot. You know, he seemed to be kind of an introvert. Yeah, he seemed to have like a a. Well, from what we're hearing, we're and like you said, we're only hearing secondhand accounts now. Yep. That he was able to like turn it on in public, right? Yeah. That he was able to put on his his happy face in but, public. But then, yeah. Other than that, he was, there's kind of a sense of melancholy. Like but Kurt couldn't even it. do that. Uh, no, and that's one of the big differences is that Kurt was kind of always Kurt. It seemed like. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, he still performed on stage for a living, so... I know, right. it always he, felt he, a little... Yeah. Yeah. In that, in that uh, thing that, that I... Some of the stuff I was reading, Dave Grohl would talk about how Kurt would go out there and perform, and they'd play wonderfully as a band, but then they would walk off stage, and that would be the last they saw of Kurt until the next performance, hmm. right? And huh. then they'd go out and do another wonderful show together where they seemed completely in sync as a band, and then it was over and Kurt was gone again, you know? Oh, and there you go, yeah. So. I don't know what that means. You said, there you go. What did that mean? I don't know what that means. That's the parallel, right? So that's Kurt Cobain turning it on, oh, basically. Right. Um, the rest of his personality and his probably his persona in interviews and other other media was just to sell the the whole grunge music vibe, right? Oh, so, really? So I would I would I would say that strengthens strengthens his comparison to to Rhaegar. Yeah, but that implies he's like he's he's uh he's well okay I see it strengthens the comparison. Well, okay. it wasn't it wasn't he he didn't ever seem to be in it for and I'm sorry we're getting off on a tangent of Kurt Cobain. He wasn't in it for like the the higher furthering of grunge music and stuff he was kind of in it for kurt cobain's music right Mm -hmm. and and so yeah he was trying to always further that and everything but yeah but if if he truly just wanted it for his personal like enjoyment of he'd have stayed in his goddamn basement yeah he would never have absolutely yeah Yeah. so there he did need that validation Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. in some way unless the band dragged him along but that's pretty hard to do no it sounds like from everything that the surviving members have said, Chris and Dave, that Kurt was not one to be drug. <laughs> yeah, not. he was either dragging or they weren't going anywhere. Yeah, you don't marry someone like Courtney Love. Just leave it at that. You don't marry someone like Courtney Love. That's, that's enough. <laughs> if you don't want like a, an exciting life, <laughs> uh, I was not a fan of Nirvana uh, for about a decade. I refused to listen to their music. Um, because, uh, principally I was against and angry at them for killing the music that I loved. Um, (laughs) grunge pretty much brought about the death of, of all music that I enjoy. (laughs) And, um, so I was against them, but, uh, still, like you said, total respect for, for them as artists. And, you know, now I listen and they got some really good shit. They do. As if, as if they need my accolades at this point. (laughs) <laughs> that's After kind of changing the whole like. <laughs> scape of music we finally got our validation from the davos fingers podcast yeah i'm really i'm really fortunate that i i was the perfect age that they were a very formative influence on my musical tastes yeah, like yeah 
I yeah, born in 80. So I was like 14 in 94. It was just that time where you're choosing your own music, not listening to like Alabama tapes in your dad's car. Billy Joel, Kenny Loggins. <laughs> yeah. No, see, yeah, that's the difference. I was like enjoying those tapes and didn't want to be disturbed by this mess of new music. Mm-hmm. I was the perfect age too. Brooke and I are the same age for those of you that don't know or close. And uh, I won't even go to how old I was then. I just refused <laughs> to take it in. I just refused. Too bad. And I went to like a 90s party where you're supposed to dress up like it's the 90s. And everybody came with like barrettes in their hair and some um, oh, flannel. And you came grunge. Jeans. And I came grunge. And they're like, what you are you doing? Flannel. I'm like, this yeah. was the 90s yeah. for me. Like yeah. a choker and, and, and dark lipstick and a Nirvana t-shirt and plaid. And yeah. And I would have come as Nikki Six over the hill and drunk and pissed off that his music is no longer relevant. <laughs> <laughs> all right should we move on that was a departure wow sorry everyone yeah, yeah. Mm. the only I, thing I, the, the thing that really interested me in this chapter and really wanted like piqued my interest the seven size and the 16 seats of pleasure i want to know what that is they don't teach that in uh byu i didn't ever learn what the seven size and the 16 seats of pleasure were <laughs> So maybe they're like apparently a like these legendary Kama Sutra type stuff. Yeah, I'm sure it's Kama Sutra like stuff. The slaves in in lice get uh, intensive training on how to yeah. perform the seven yeah. size and the sixteen seats of pleasure. And uh, it's all talk. It's not that great. It's like one side, two seats, <laughs> but really, it's like all get interpretation. <laughs> Whatever, it's fine. Uh, uh, we should touch on Danny real quick and and running into the crowd of of her children. Uh, pretty powerful moment. I don't. I don't know that I have much to say about it other than what a great feeling that would be, and you know, does that feeling offset the fact that she's pretty fucking cutthroat these last couple chapters and just yeah. basically murdering people? Uh, you know, is it offset by these thousands of slaves pouring out yeah. and feeling free? Wasn't she just calling them locusts with sandals? That's the thing that I always come back to is that every mouth that joins her is a mouth she has to feed. And I don't know. I don't know if I like this. Uh, I like the whole liberating the slaves idea. I just don't know if this is a sustainable practice of taking every slave that wants to come with her and allowing them to come along. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, what else is she going to do? But uh, I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Well, all the people that don't uh, don't come with her, you know, they have uh, the victor go the spoils, right? I like mean, they, gotta, they stay they in the city. They piece together society somehow. Yeah. Right. But and that's the some the somehow is also a mystery because so far this economy uh, the economies of these cities are based completely on slavery, slavery. Yeah. and you don't have slavery anymore. What are you going to do? Yeah, you don't have farmland. You know what? <laughs> How are you going to bring in money? I yeah. don't know. Uh, what what happened in the states when they abolished slavery? Was there just like a, a total like market this crash? Little thing called the Civil War and. Um... I know, no, but like <laughs> after the Civil War, no, most, like, like mostly, economically, what happened? Economically, I mean, I'm not a scholar. Somebody, you know, at will come along and and call me an idiot or something. But mostly, what happened is uh, a lot of slaves went north. Uh, a lot of slaves stuck around and worked as essentially slaves for their former masters, right? Uh, or transferred masters to other farms or whatever. But they basically worked for ascent what we would call today slave wages, uh, and very little changed in in some ways uh, you know right mm. the difference was is that the slaves were 
kind of part of moving the economy along, right? There was farmland and they worked on the farms that produced the goods that moved the market along, right? In places like Yunkai and Astapor, slavery is the market. They Mm -hmm. buy and sell slaves. So you eliminate slavery – you have no goods. The more, the more, yeah. The 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 more uh, parallel question, Brooke, would be when slavery was abolished in the states. What happened in Africa to to the people oh, in okay. Africa that were selling yeah. the slaves? Yeah, um, the slave traders. And and I think the answer is they just left and went back to England. I, I don't know that for sure, but you know, like they just left and the that dried up, and mm-hmm. you know, the Africans that were used to being hunted started building their own their own worlds with less fear. I don't I have know. To double ch- I have I've to double know. check, but I think they they left and went back to Holland. I think your oh, your American hatred of the English is showing. <laughs> uh, well, I think it was I think it was anybody willing to make a buck. Yeah, yeah true. they probably came from all over the place. But <laughs> they're probably Americans that did it. So. <sighs> all right, let's uh, let's jump to Arya's chapter. Yes. Okay. Arya. On the foot, horse face, sticking with the pointy end. Arya, on the foot, horse face, sticking with the pointy end. Ah. I love you, Arya. So Arya and the gang are back at High Heart on their way to River Run. High Heart is still creepy, still haunted, and still a great defensible hill to make a camp on. Thoros is staring into the fire they made at the top, but the mighty Rulor isn't answering any of Thoros's calls. Arya, Gendry, and Ned, Lord Beric's squire, take Thoros's failure to see any visions in the flames as an opportunity to bug him. Gendry reveals to Thoros that his old master, Tobho Mott, used to make the swords Thoros would set alight during tourneys, and Topo would badmouth Thoros, like, all the time, calling him an idiot for lighting up good steel, a drunk, and a shitty priest. Thoros is like... <laughs> Yeah, totally. And laughs, telling the kids how he came to Westeros from Mir and agreeing that fire is no way to treat a blade. An admission that, like, summons Beric from the shadows to ruin the mood and remark, fire consumes. Yeah, totally. Fire consumes. It consumes, and when it is done, there is nothing left. And Thoros is like, hey, buddy. What's going on there? Step back from that ledge, my friend. <laughs> and Beric is like, nothing I have not said before. Six times, Thoros. Six times is too many. So, uh, <laughs> and he leaves. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, they literally like, got to later that night. I'm <laughs> a zombie. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening here. Um, so later that night, Arya is spying, as Arya does, on Dondarrion, Theros, and Lem Lemoncloak, meeting with the prophet, the ghost of Highheart. She's feeling right randy this windy night and agrees to tell the gang her dreams at the price of a skin of wine and any other news for, and I quote, a sloppy kiss with a bit of tongue. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Uh, just a reminder to everyone, the ghost of High Heart has one tooth. <laughs> one. <laughs> Which probably works like a little can opener and would really cut up Lem. <laughs> so Lem unpolitely declines and Beric does his friend a solid, 
pouring out Tom Seven Strings for a song instead. <laughs> uh, the dreams and news she recounts are thus. Uh, King Balon Greyjoy is swimming with the fishes. Hoster Tully swimming with freshwater fishes. A goat sits alone and fevered in a hall uh, and in a hall of kings as the great dog descends on him. A wolf howling in the rain with no one to hear his grief. A great clangor with a sad chime of tiny bells. A maid at a feast with venomous purple serpents in her hair. That same maid defeating a savage giant in a castle made of snow. So uh, a lot of interesting prophecies, a lot to think about. We know some goats and we know some dogs and wolves and maids. So maybe we can discuss some of this later. But then the ghost stops and beckons Arya closer. The jig is up and Arya steps into the light of the fire just so the ghost can start shaking and sobbing, saying that Arya is a blood child, has a dark heart, and smells of death even more than old six times reheated Beric, which doesn't feel great no matter how strong your bratty defenses are. So when Dondarrion assures the ghosts that they're taking Arya to River Run the next day, the ghost tells them to go to the twins to find Catelyn because there is going to be a wedding. So the next day they're riding out in the pouring rain and Arya starts making small talk with Ned. This is Ned Beric's squire to take the poor kid's mind off of the chills he's suffering from. He's an odd one in her eyes, an ash blonde, purple eyed Dornishman, when she's always heard that Dornishmen are small and swarthy and dark eyed. Arya doesn't describe him as uh, cute, but he is probably a little cutie because she does mention that Gendry doesn't like Ned. So <laughs> the laws of the logic states that yeah. Ned is probably super cute. <laughs> Gendry's Toast. like. Gendry's weird, (laughs) awkward feelings indicate Ned is hot. (laughs) Yeah, and that he's jealous. So only 12 and unbloodied, Arya doesn't admit to Ned that she'd first killed her, uh, made her first kill when she was eight years old. So she, uh, it's kind of quiet for a while, but then eventually Ned asks her about Jon Snow, which she finds odd until Ned tells her that he and John are milk brothers. This is significantly different from Eskimo brothers. Ned and John were both nursed by a woman named Willa, who, according to Ned, is also John's mother. Arya's like, what the fuck? You better break this down and be honest or I'll punch you in the face. She actually tells him she'll punch him in the face if he lies. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> and it turns out Ned, short for Edric, is Edric Dane, the Lord of Starfell, nephew to Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, arguably the coolest knight in history. So Willa served the Danes for years, presumably wet nursing all of the wee blondes. And we don't get deets on Ned uh, Ned Stark's affair with Willa, um, she of the productive bosom. But we do learn that Ned Stark and Ashara Dane, uh, Squire Ned's aunt, were hot and heavy after they met at the tournament at Harrenhal. Uh, Ashara, yeah, Ashara later killed herself by jumping off a tower, but again, not sure if it was because of losing Ned Stark's cool embrace, or because of grief over Arthur Dane dying at the Tower of Joy at the hands of Ned Stark and Havlin Reed. That night at camp, Thoros finally gets a vision in the flames, and it's not good. River Run is definitely under siege by the Lannisters. 
Arya is furious because if she wasn't being held hostage by the um, uh, Brothers Without Banners, she'd be at River Run right now. But this potential siege is just another obstacle to getting to her mother. They discuss waiting it out at Acorn Hall again while they confirm the situation, you know, make sure that uh, what Thoros is seeing, what the ghost of High Heart has said is true. And Arya just loses it, running out of camp without a horse or any of her things or anything, just a solid Arya-style run tantrum. And then, boom, like out of nowhere, guess who literally plucks her off the ground? Sandor frigging Clegane. And that's where the chapter ends. Brutal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So we can we can assume that Arya is now a captive of Sandor, and he's not going to try ransoming her right back to Beric Dondarrion, you know, like twenty feet away. So, I mean, the good news is he probably just wants to stick a knife at her throat and make her sing a song, which uh, which not... is noble behavior <laughs> according to most of the voters on. Our... Sorry, I'll just let it go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she probably, he probably wants to emotionally and physically abuse her too. Yeah. But, um... Or he just wants to get paid. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. We, we can probably safely assume that he wants to either regain some sort of station or get money for her or, yeah, maybe trade her in for a better Stark model. We'll see. We'll see. But, uh, I wanted to tell you, Matt, I have good news. I finally have a song to tie into this week's episode. Yes! Oh, yeah. I can't wait to find it. Yeah. It's The Mercy Seat by uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Have you guys ever heard it? Uh, I have. I love Nick Cave. Yeah. So the song itself is mostly yeah. about a man on death row waiting for the electric chair. That's why it's called The Mercy Seat. Mm. But the lyrics are just like really beautifully poetic. And it could be Beric Dondarrion's theme song. Uh, some mm. of the lines are so perfect, it, it's just, it hurts. Like, um, in a way, I'm yearning to be done with all this measuring of proof, and my body is on fire, and God is never far away, so I go shuffling out of life just to hide in death a while, and I am not afraid to die. And like a moth that tries to enter the bright eye, I go shuffling out of life just to hide in death a while. And anyway, I never lie. It's like, oh, uh, yeah. So musically, musically, I think Mm. that the Johnny Cash cover of this song is better and is more applicable to like the whole uh, attitude and atmosphere of this chapter. That sounds like a atmosphere type. Mm -hmm. Johnny Cash covered a song from Nick Cave and the Blood Letters. Sure did. Yeah, Johnny yeah. Cash in like the early two thousands put out this great album of covers. You should check it out. It's, it's amazing. Should. It's a winner. He covered the yeah. Nine Inch Nails. Um, I've heard uh, that one. Uh, I can't remember what the song is called. Um, but no, I didn't even make that connection with the. Nick what Cave what was the shuffling out of life? Um, so I go shuffling out of life just to hide in death a while. I was like, oh, that's that that's is, what Eric does all the that's, time. That's straight that up is, Shakespeare as well. Mm. Is it? Gorgeous. It's. I mean, it's not a direct quote, but it's it's oh, okay. the exact same theme from Hamlet's famous soliloquy, Shuffle mm-hmm. Off This Mortal Coil. Um, yeah, totes. It's a, it's a great song. I, I've heard that song, but I I need to listen to it more closely. That's fantastic. Nick Cave and the, what was it? The Bad Blood Seeds. Oh. All right. Mm-hmm. I will Google it tonight. 
I am so sheltered. But, but listen to the Johnny Cash cover first. Okay. The next seed one is a little experimental. Still good. As, yeah. The Mercy Seat by Johnny Cash. Yeah. Roundabout. Cool. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay. So, awesome. yeah. Um, I did want to mention that it's that Thoros, when uh, he was first looking to the fire at the beginning of the chapter, could not see anything. And mm-hmm. he just kind of chalked it up to, you know, sometimes her lore doesn't give me visions. But then later, the ghost of Highheart is like, go look into your fire somewhere else. You're not going to see anything up here yeah. because uh, the Highheart, the hill, is ringed by weirwood stumps and is still the, uh, I don't know, district of the old gods. Yeah, it's a seat of which power. Which appar- apparently cancels out the might of R'hllor. Yeah. yeah, that got me into thinking. Me like, too. Yeah. How do these two powers so interact with each other? Because mm-hmm. they both seem to be like good guy type things in terms of fighting the others, but mm-hmm. here, here's seem the interesting... to not coexist too well. Here's the interesting bit about this whole thing to me. Both the Ghost of Highheart and Thoros don't... They don't reject the other religion. In, in Like, in our world... <laughs> yeah, there should definitely be some sort of war here. Right? Well, no, I, I just mean, <laughs> in our crusade. world, it's pretty common for strict followers of a certain faith, which I would think the Ghost of Highheart and Thoros both fall into that category... They they dismiss other faiths as usually at least as being somewhat inaccurate, as being misled, or you're missing the details, or you've got the right idea but no, you know that kind of mm. thing. Yeah. In this, the ghost of Iheart is like, consult your flames, your god will tell you. It's it's admission that Relor is real, and and and, and to Thoros's to side, he's also saying yeah. he's also by not rejecting that, he's saying. If you're telling me that's true, I believe it because your old gods are telling you that he'll tell me that. It's like acceptance that both are okay. Mm-hmm. This is and they both I, I, work, I, but not together. Right, and it's the first time I ever thought in this series, on this reread, that I think both of these, maybe all of these gods are real, except the seven who suck. I, I can't get behind the seven. They just <laughs> they don't seem to show up like fucking ever. But. <laughs> but Relor and the old gods, man, they like they seem like they're there. They seem real oh. to me somehow. And the uh, I don't want to get too spoilery in agreeing with you, but it seems to me that there are a lot of similarities between mm. the two religions. And Ooh. as we've said before, I wonder if they started off in the same place. And Ooh. somewhere down the lines of history branched off from each other. Which as is... religion never, it never happens with religion, right? Well, yeah, that, which is <laughs> what a lot, of, a lot of the really deep religious thinkers will tell you that. It's like, right. everyone's deep. got the same idea. We just diverged on details and it's been so long that we end up in these completely different places. Everyone's got the right idea, right? Like, For okay, example, but... the prince that was promised and Azor Ahai. Yeah, right. Very mm-hmm. similar. Yeah. Right. And uh, and uh, what was the other one? The one that we hear from Old Nan that we never hear again? That Brooke dismissed in, like, episode five? Oh, <laughs> what was it? I can't even remember now, so maybe that proves her point. <laughs> I, man, you can hold a the grudge. Hero. Oh, the last the hero. Um, the last hero. Yeah, the last, the last hero. hero. You remember okay, that, but if, if your theory is true, that means that the old gods and Relore, their interpretation has divided, yeah. but at some point... 
they exist, they coexisted on the same plane, or they and they the still coexist thing. on the same plane. Yeah. Does that mean that maybe the old gods are actually the great other, and the great other in this case is more powerful than Roar? Maybe oh, she just blew my mind. Oh, this whole time I was like, oh, they're the same thing, and you're saying no, they're enemies. Holy fuck! But it's the same. <laughs> it comes from the same place, the same belief in the great other versus Relore. Right? Yeah, but I, in my theory, I was thinking like they came from the same place and they're both on the same side. They just diverged at some point and grew right, apart. That's, that's what I was thinking too. But she's like, oh, they come from the same place and one's evil and one's good, and that's. Yeah. Fucking killer. Well, and it's maybe not so black and white. Maybe it's like God and the devil, right? They. That's pretty black and white. (laughs) No, Lucifer started out as an archangel and just disagreed with God. He wasn't necessarily evil. But it's pretty black and white now. In some interpretations, Um, I I don't I don't know enough about the devil. (laughs) All I know he he rocks. That's all I know. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) No, he doesn't, Brett. You take Matt that. has some materials he'd like to send you. It's you free. You just go to the website. and I'm not going to send you materials. I'm going to send you a couple boys. Whoa! In white shirts. Not those types of boys. They're not from life. Looks like I accept. <laughs> some of them are pretty handsome. Oh, so clean cut. Oh, yeah. Not your style. Uh, we've had this discussion before. Calgary's just rotten missionaries. Yeah, rotten. They're everywhere with their little name tags. One of the I can't believe you're uh, bitching about this to us here in Salt Lake. Yeah. Well, don't they leave Salt Lake? Yeah, but they all come back and then we have all of them. No offense, Matt. Do they Matt. still wear the name tags? No, no, no. Okay. Do I still wear my name tag? <laughs> For I different assume, reasons. I assume so. The, the, pressed, the pressed pants, the crisp white shirt, the name tag. Yeah, sometimes I put it on at night. Just to, <laughs> just to remember the good no old days. I told you no joking about your sex lives. Wow. <laughs> I love you guys. Mic drop. Brooke out. <laughs> that was good. Uh, anyways, uh, what else do you want to talk about with this chapter? Well... I, I just back to the religion thing just really quick. Um, it seems like Relor, uh, Thoros has that bit in there about his pyromancers. Uh, he's talking about Robert, or sorry, um, Ares. Uh, his pyromancers knew better tricks than I did. They sent, they essentially sent Thoros to King's Landing to try to impress Ares because they're like, oh, he likes fire. Well, we're, you know, Thoros can do fire stuff. But the pyromancers were better than, than Thoros at, at that. And, it's almost like, and now Thoros has all this power, right? Or, or it seems like he does, unless it's tricks of some kind. But it's almost like Relor like recessed and lost power. It's a weird thing to think about gods losing power, right? Mm. Um, but but it's not uh, it's not without precedent. I mean, in literature for sure. Not that I'm, well, I'm even, even not... in this world, we've seen instances where the manifestation of their power has receded or we've seen gotten... it with magic for sure and dragons, which is what I would say their power is, right? Yeah, perhaps right. I, I don't know. I don't know that there's a link there between <sighs> dragons and religion. I'm not sure, but there, there's certainly dragons and magic, I think. But there's I'm not magic sure about in religion. the world, but it's about. Does it equate back to some god that's yeah. providing the magic? Exactly. They seem to explain the magic yeah. through religion, right? They want to. Mm. I'm but... not sure about the Macers want to. No, but... definitely not. Well, they want to discount magic completely. Yeah. But this happened when I was reading, when I was thinking about this, about like, why, like, 
why would he all of a sudden not have power and like it's coming back into the world? That that really bothers me. A god is they're omnipotent. Like why can't they? You know, like why would they lose power? They're they're all powerful. But then you know, like that's our interpretation of God on this planet. Exactly. There are there are certainly other precedents. Dragon the Dragonlance series, which I read a ton as a young adult, <laughs> right? Like their gods wax and wane. Like different ones are in power and different ones are more powerful than at other times. And um, you know, the Greek gods certainly went through that too. Like in our mythology of, of the Greek mythology and stuff. But the Dragonlance stuff just popped into mind like there's a whole time period where the where the gods are like completely gone from the world like they receded from the world they're not even around anymore in in those stories and mm. you know yeah maybe it's something like that where they just kind of disappeared and it's really easy for religions to diverge and separate and get confused when your gods are absent for a while right uh yep maybe not for sure yes again did i if there are gods at all if there are gods at all, fair enough. Seems seems like it seems like they explain again. They explain their magic as being from quote unquote gods, but yeah. yeah. Going back to your original point, Scad, it is cool that they are so just thoughtlessly accepting of each other's mm-hmm. beliefs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that was a really casually good point, almost. Yeah, very very <laughs> casual. Oh, just just check out your flames later. He'll tell you. I I really like Thoros. On that note, <laughs> I just love the guy. He's yeah. like, yeah, I wasn't that good of a priest. Yeah. It, they, like you said, Sked, they, they kind of sent him to Westeros because I think they saw him as kind of a lost cause. Yeah. And they see Westeros with as their worship cause. of the seven yeah. as a lost cause. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we need to put him somewhere. Let's yeah. just send him to Westeros. Yeah. Yeah. It's the opposite of the Mormon faith, actually. Like, I feel like, well, it's only from personal experience, but I feel like they send their sharpest kids to the places that need it the most. Like Brazil, right? Like Brazil. <laughs> I, I had a friend who was super smart and super dedicated that went to... Uh, Idaho. Uh, Russia. Uh, uh, Yakutsk? I don't remember which region it was. Super tough area. And like, wow, Indeed. That's a challenge. Yeah. So good for, good for your faith in uh, challenging the, those that can accept the challenge. How about Ned's story? Or stories? Oh, man. There's so much to talk about on this. Yeah. Do we save it for Davos After Dark? Some of it. I, I just want to say this. Hearing hearing Ned's stories, but also reading Gurm's brilliant depictions of Arya's reactions to these stories, mm-hmm. it's like the Stark kids are those poor homeschooled kids that get taught different history than everyone else gets. <laughs> <laughs> like, she has no clue about stories that are essential to her family's history her own father's history assuming it's true right it reminds me of jojen and mira telling yes the story and mira asks him what like three times you sure you've never heard this before that's what i mean it's not just Arya being a bad student which she would be bran is a from all accounts seems like an excellent student he remembers his history he can recite things back about the queen's crown and the causeway and all sorts of things that he learned Arya, maybe you could chalk it up like oh yeah she just wasn't paying attention she wanted to be hunting squirrels but it seems like all the start kids are just missing this element of their history <laughs> and yet harwin knows <laughs> Arya's yeah like... harwin's like oh yeah that old thing I, yeah, I heard you that. know too yeah. what yeah <laughs> totally as if to underscore it. Right. 
I, I, I'll say too, just about the story. So Ned supposedly fell in love with Lady Ashara at Harrenhal. Then within, I don't know what the timeline exactly is, within two calendar years, knocked up one of her servants. <laughs> Sounds like Ned. <laughs> Certainly does, right? Yeah. Interesting to find out why she killed herself. Uh, I can't wait. I cannot wait to read that story. Yeah. George has... Let me just say this, George, if you're listening, if you haven't considered this. You have so many licensing opportunities to sell these side stories out to other authors that would be interested in writing them. Just think <laughs> about it. We'll all read them. Is Scott Thompson. <laughs> well, no, don't trust me. I can't write shit. But... I'm just going to write the backstory of Hodor. Yeah. I would love to read that. write that story. Should we get over to Jamie? Jamie? Jamie, take us there. Would you know that he's deadly in a fight and a smile so wide to get cheating at the palm of his hand, Jamie Lannister? Got a thing for sister, gonna keep it quiet so we'll push a kid out a window. And when that king's lying, dead it doesn't matter, reason bottom line is sister treason. And deep inside, could there be something only if you could see a hero? Could that be? Said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister, say it again, said Jamie, said Jamie. Said Jamie Lannister. Uh-uh-uh. Jamie departs Harrenhal under a party of Northmen commanded by Steelshanks Walton. Kyburn also there to ensure the best care for his hand and to drive the plot forward, to be honest. The Bloody Mummers keep Harrenhal, and it should be noted Lady Brienne. He leaves, but not before promising the Mummers that he'll be back to pay his debts, as Lannisters always pay their debts. He's dressed as a knight of no renown. He's even given weapons for the trip. They travel slowly along backwoods tracks to avoid trouble, despite the size of their host, which is considerable, and despite Jamie's protestations to take a quicker route, they stick to the back, back roads. As they travel, Jamie recognizes the way and remembers the story of how he received his white cloak. Briefly, Harrenhal, a huge crowd, a giant roar as he stood with his new cloak, and then dismissed, not allowed to compete in the tourney, sent home to guard the family. Jamie woke up at that moment when he was dismissed, sent back to guard the family. He was a pawn, or perhaps a knight, if you're generous, in Ares' chess game with his own father, Tywin. Kyburn disrupts this daydream that Jamie's having to inquire about his hand, and they do some small talk additionally. Kyburn sent him a girl the night before they left. She wanted him, he rejected her, he has eyes for Cersei only. Uh, out of the blue, Kyburn also offers some more intel. He inspects girls before any uh, recreation, torture, oh my gosh. whatever, yeah, <laughs> gross, occurs. And that those inspections included Brienne, who is indeed still a maid, in case anyone was wondering. And that they also received an offer of 300 gold dragons for her, but that the goat is holding out for Sephireth. <laughs> Weird that he's just offering all this information up. Apparently he's a bit of a gossip. Anyway, Jamie starts thinking about Brienne's fate. He thinks and thinks and can't shake the thoughts of what she is in for with the Bloody Mummer's beatings, rape, maybe lost limbs. Hey, dumbass, that's called your conscience. You're supposed to listen to it. <laughs> they travel on, they make camp. Jamie sleeps. Ah, to sleep. To sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for in Jamie's sleep is death. He is home at the rock. His hand is whole. Men with spears prod him down, down, down. When he reaches the bottom, his father, sister, son, and other Lannisters condemn him to this dark place they've driven him to. 
They turn to go, but leave him with a sword. A sword that catches fire, blue fire, as soon as he picks it up. Brienne also appears out of fucking nowhere, blunders forward to join him, chained naked. She also gets a sword. He frees her, uh, and her sword catches fire. She is convinced something lives down here. A bear? A direwolf? Only doom, is Jamie's reply. Then they come, riders on pale horses, soundless, armored in snow. They were his Kingsguard brothers and Rhaegar himself, and they want him to explain his actions. Why he broke his oaths. Why he killed the king. Why he didn't protect Rhaegar's children. He can't answer as they press in on him. His flame goes out, and Brienne is alone to protect him. He wakes up with a new resolve to save Brienne from her fate. It takes some doing, but he convinces Walton that it is in his best interest to go back to Harrenhal, not onto King's Landing as he's supposed to. They make it back, they're allowed in, and Jamie immediately hears the ruckus. The bear pit. He comes to Brienne in the crazy, ugly pink dress that she was wearing before, sword in hand, facing an eight-foot bear that I'm going to call Trinket. Hashtag critical role. <laughs> Jamie pleads for her removal, her life, but is ignored. So he jumps in the bear pit after seeing that her sword is just a tourney sword. It's blunted. It's not even able to really fend off the bear. They dance around long enough, he and Brienne, that Longshanks eventually realizes that if Jamie dies in there with the bear, he's going to be in quite a pickle. So his men slay the bear with crossbow bolts and convince Vargo to let them go. Their numbers and the inebriation of Vargo's own camp weighing heavily in his decision to let them go. On the road to King's Landing, Brienne asks, Why did you come back? His answer, I dreamed of you. And that's the end of the chapter. Yeah! I love Whoa. that chapter. It's a good chapter. Oh, I love tense. that chapter. It's a good chapter. Uh, but a lot, so, so much of it, uh, we kind of need to talk about, I think, in Davos After Dark. Oh, we will. I don't know if you guys agree. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I'll just talk about Jamie's conscience. Uh, it's working overtime here. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like a, a muscle that you haven't worked in a while. <laughs> and you work it and it's kind of just a burden to you you don't you know it's kind of tough that's the state his conscience is in right but it's it's working overtime here and it's doing a good job yeah there's so much i want to say <laughs> but i need to separate fanboy from you critical don't, you don't have to separate chat. fanboy we're all about fanboy on this podcast <laughs> now one thing that struck me on this read is the fact Jamie, unless I'm mistaken, and I can explain some of this away, but it f- I feel like Jamie didn't have to jump into that bear pit because in the end, couldn't he have just ordered Walton's men to shoot the bear without him jumping in? Probably. It happened pretty fast. Right. He, he made the decision impetuously, which I'll say he does, right? I mean, he's a man of action. He wants to act. And, and the fact that he did it that he was able to make that decision and just do it. Like you said, it was so fast. And his first instinct was get in there and do what I can. Well, I'd say his first instinct was to leave her with the bloody mummers. But yes, upon arriving back, yeah, his first instinct was let's get in there. The fact that he went back is so commendable. I agree. The fact that he left in the first place, not good. The fact that he went back, though is commendable but, and he woke up guys in the middle of the night he didn't hesitate yeah we're going back right now and if you don't come i'm gonna essentially turn i'm gonna lie yep. and say that you're you did this to me and all this crappy stuff um 
and went back. That's what? that's really something that he jumped into that bear pit again. That's what's sort so... of Jamie in a nutshell. Yeah. Sorry. Yes, that's exactly where I was going to go. Go ahead, Brooke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, <laughs> screwing up the first time, mm-hmm. and then making amends. Yeah, but it's 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 that, and it's also figuring out who he is. Yep. And 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 it took a dream, you know, but he realized this isn't who I am leaving somebody that did good for me. That's, that's not who I am. I'm not going to leave her to that fate. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't like, okay, as soon as we wake up in the morning, I'll tell the guys we'll pack up and we'll go back. Urgency. It was, yeah. let's go take care of this right now. Which I would say is just a part of his character. I think he is, Absolutely. like I said, a man, a man of action, a man that's not, he's not yep. going to wait for anything. It's mm-hmm. yeah, let's do it now. Whatever it is. Breakfast now. You know, let's do it. Yeah, there's a lot of indicators that we're getting in this chapter and others of kind of like Jamie's true nature is a really good nature. He's actually got a lot of these really good qualities, but over the years they've just been calloused over and suppressed. And we could say he's a product of his environment and blame it on that. And I think that might bear partial responsibility growing up with a dad like Tywin Lannister and the types of expectations that Tywin had on him and everything definitely played a part in it. Um, But, you know, just, I mean, I'm not going to throw you and I under the bus, Scott, but how many guys would be asleep and you have a naked woman crawl into bed with you and to be able to still send her away right who's completely ready to go and you send her you're like get out of here i mean that yeah. shows a lot of you know the loyalty to cersei that he still has yeah um, that could just be habit by now <laughs> I, don't I don't know i don't know yeah. Uh, yeah, no, we also... I, you know what? I'm not gonna actually going inter- to interject my opinion on this one. You guys would know way better. I think that would be a pretty, well, I don't know. I, I mean, I've had what... naked women crawl into my bed, but I didn't turn them away. All right. <laughs> Listens just went up for our podcast. Uh... Brooke after dark. <laughs> it's probably mid-morning. Uh, so... <laughs> Yeah, I, I I think so. I don't know what to call it, quality or issues. I, I think Jamie has some major family issues. Like he needs so counseling. If counseling yeah. exists, and yeah. that you know that shouldn't take away from his dedication and his loyalty to Cersei. I don't think you know that he, it's his sister. So what? It's still it's still loyalty. You know that mm-hmm. that matters. Um, but I just think he you know that dream. You know, this is certainly something we can say without spoiling. That dream indicates that he's got some major trust issues with his family. Yes. And, the, you know, that means something to him. That That's something he has to work out to figure yeah, out. Yeah, even after Cersei leaves him, all he can think about is getting back up to her. Yeah. When she yeah. left him. So that much more to talk about. What else do you guys want to talk about? I didn't have much. I think a lot of this is the dream, and a lot of that maybe belongs in Davos After Dark. Um, yeah, we might just jump right to it. Yeah, I don't. I don't have much more. Brooke. Yeah. No. Let's let's get to the good juicy part. Let's do it. Juicy. We are going to jump into the realm of spoilers in a segment we call Davos After Dark. So if you don't want to be spoiled for future books beyond this very chapter, uh, get rid of 
your earbuds or where, however you're listening to this podcast right now. Uh, next week or next episode, we're covering Catlin 5 and Catlin 6. So this is the first time we've handled the same POV in an episode for a Can't while. Uh, we also get back to Samwell 3. Um, another Aria chapter, of course. We have to have an Aria chapter every single episode. So Aria 9 and then back to John 2 with John 6. So that's chapters 45 through 49 according to the Wiki of Ice and Fire. So without any further ado, let's jump to Davos After Dark. One more thing really quick. Uh, Matt oh. never wants to, to toot his own horn, but if you love the musical jingles uh, that you're hearing, mm-hmm. Matt wrote and performed all of them. Uh, and he's amazingly talented. Uh, he leaves Brooke and I in the dust and we feel pretty pretty bad about it. Uh, but you can download them uh, as, lo- as well as a full-length John song at wearedavosfingers.bandcamp.com. Please do it. We'll all appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. That was You're nice welcome. of you to say. Yep. <laughs> uh, someone asked when the other songs are going to be made available, so this is as good a time as any to address it. I was kind of going to wait until we had enough songs to make another album, yeah. quote-unquote album. Yeah. Um, but I'm open to suggestions. We could upload each song just as they're written, and I could put them up there. But uh, let us know what you think, if you'd like to just get them piecemeal or if you'd like them uh, in an album-type format. I think that was uh, our follower, Jamie. Yeah, He's Jamie Kennedy brought it up. Super fan. Love Jamie. Yeah. Right now there's only two uh, that aren't on the album, I think. That's Sam's Sam and, Sam and uh, oh, Jamie. No. Yeah. Jamie. And we've got the prologue song as well. So three, if you could call that a song. <laughs> uh, okay, Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. Okay, let's just keep this going and jump into Jamie's dream. Um, this is a this is a deep dream. Uh, where do we start? Overall, what do you guys... Is there an overall theme to this dream? I've got some ideas. It, but... It's just that him and Brienne are done. Uh, however, it's going to be interpreted. They're like, done as in they're going to die? I think no, said, they're, 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 not, they're not done with each other. Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah. Which I think is part of the thing that like catapulted him back to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there was only one thing protecting him at the end of that dream, and it was Brienne. And I think that's a powerful thing for for him, right? His flame went out. He has these people bearing down on him, demanding things of him, and Brienne is there to protect him, and she's not moving, right? Yeah, that's a really that's really cool imagery. I thought of where we end off with Jamie and Brienne the last time we see them in the book so far, is Brienne Ruse, coming? Right. What's that? Isn't it with Roos at the dinner? No, I'm sorry. I mean, the books, as far as they've been written, oh, A Dance sorry. with Dragons, yeah, yeah, clear into Davos After Dark territory. Um, Brienne finds Jamie, right? And he's like, she's like, we found Sansa. Come see her, which is a lie. We know she hasn't found Sansa. Brienne was with Lady Stoneheart. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking Brienne's taking Jamie back to Lady Stoneheart. Mm-hmm. And Lady Stoneheart is not going to want to do nice things to Jamie. Why? And uh, oh, this he failed with the Sansa Arya <laughs> I'm thing. I'm kidding. You're joking. April Fools. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm wondering if uh, maybe there ends up being some trial by combat or something like that. Um, yeah. And Brienne steps in for Jamie. 
that could be the his sword going out and her sword saying lit. It might That's be kind cool. of a, a passing of uh, Jamie accepting Brienne as his equal, um, allowing her to like be his sword hand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's finally admitting like, I can't do this one handed, whatever the battle or whatever it's going to end up being. But Brienne is willing to and I'm going to allow her to do that. Uh, letting Brienne kind of be his champion, which would be a huge deal for someone as prideful as Jamie, right? And yeah. I think that could be a really cool reveal. But anyways, this is something I was thinking about. That would be awesome. I think both of them are going to end up back in front of Lady Stoneheart. And something's going to happen there. And I think that sounds like an awesome uh, reflection of, of that scene in the dream. How many dreams follow like a logical course of action, yeah. right? All yeah. dreams kind of go all over the place. And I think this is kind of a manifestation of that guilt that he does have yep. uh, over the whole handling of Robert's rebellion. And especially the thing with um, Rhaegar's kids uh, yeah. allowing them to be killed. And he's he rightfully says, I wasn't there. I, you know, what could I have done? But, um, but still he feels guilty for that. But it's a it's still a weird art. If, so if you feel... So I, I think the guilt thing is spot on. If you feel like it's a representation of others, mm -hmm. like how? Like he, he's got one hand, he's not proficient. I mean, he's getting better, supposedly, like with his training, but he's not really great. If you read this like some sort of prophecy of him against the others, what it really says is like his flame is going to go out against the others. He's going to die. But but how else is he, like, how's he even going to get there? What's his motivation for even going up to the north where the others are? I don't, it, it just seems... It, I want to believe it because it sounds like a cool arc for him uh, of, of redemption of some kind. But I just don't... I don't know what impetus would send him there. Maybe yeah. it just has to be left unanswered, but... I don't know. Brooke, any ideas? I feel like the culmination of this great war is going to be in Westeros and possibly the wall will have fallen and they will come to him. So like it's kind of a thing that no one can escape. Like you can't be, you can't sit this one out. Yeah, yeah. Be cool. You're either in or you're dead type thing. That would be yeah. cool. Yeah. I will say yeah. too. Um, I think I think a big part of this is just Jamie and his feelings about his family <laughs> and his relationship with his family, and the fact that he's at home, but they're driving him down into darkness into this desolate place i think it means yeah. that he can't go back to his family his family is a dark dark thing for him and he may not know it but that's what that represents to me and so much symbolism there with cersei of course leaving him and of course we're going to get uh, later on in the books they're kind of cersei and jamie's estrangement mm -hmm. um a lot going on there. Cersei's the only one with a light. And so far at, at this point in the book, or, I mean, by the end of A Dance with Dragons, she's the only one left alive out of those that were down there. Joffrey, Tywin. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah. I, Jamie being naked down there, I think, is uh, indicative of what you're saying, Scott. Uh, symbolizing vulnerability and stuff like that. And Brianna's too. Ooh, naughty. Yeah, I don't even know what to talk, what to say about that. I think it just means that they're uh, on the same kind plane. Of, yeah, and they've revealed things to each other that makes them 
very open vulnerable. and vulnerable yeah. to each other. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Brienne's starting to see a side of Jamie that no one's seen. Yeah. And I think Jamie understands is starting to understand Brienne in a way that not others do that others don't. And so yeah, that kind of same plane vulnerability to each other, openness to each other. And they've spent a lot of time naked together, so it was just They have. Yeah, the bath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my favorite line of that was Brienne's. Um, she says, if you climbed on my shoulders, you'd have no trouble reaching the tunnel mouth. First of all, I'm just imagining this naked guy trying to climb up a naked girl. And it's just <laughs> funny to me. Like, your, junk's, your junk's on my head. Like, <laughs> but, Which know, way did he climb bag. up? It's just a Yeah, Isn't that a beautiful sentiment, though, that Brienne's like, I just want to get you out, man. Like, forget about me. If you climb on my shoulders, you can get out. That's what she promised. And that's uh, that's kind of a beautiful, cute little sentiment that I really liked. What she promised. Mm-hmm. She's all about her promises. Yep. All right. Enough of this Jamie dream? Sure. That wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. I thought it was good. Yeah. It was fun. Well... There's two other big things, and uh, so let's just do those, and then we'll see how we feel after that. And I think we can kind of combine them. No, we can't. <laughs> There's the uh, Ghost of High Heart prophecies, um, which I don't think will take that long. And then let's talk about Ashara some more. Uh, well, the whole Dane thing in general. Mm-hmm. So you guys want to go through some High Heart stuff real quick? Yeah, let's laundry list it. Okay, I will laundry list it, and you guys respond with what it means. So, Goat sits alone and fevered as the great dog descends upon him. Uh, Fargo Hote. Yeah, pretty clear. The hound comes and, like, basically dismembers him slowly. And, uh, dismembers him? Whatever. Cuts him up into little bits slowly <laughs> later. Yeah. Feeds those bits to him, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, keeps him alive on himself, yeah. All right. That one's pretty easy. This is where it gets juicy. The wolf howling in the rain, clangor of drums, horns, pipes, and screams. And bells, too. Yeah, Red Wedding, it's Grey Wind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The clangor uh, being the the fake band. Mm -hmm. They're actually crossbowmen. Jingles the... Um, yeah, but the saddest the sound was the jingling bells or whatever it says in there. Yeah, that's Jingle Bells. So Catelyn dying. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Catelyn killing Jingle Bell. But then, I mean, Catelyn dying yes. right after that. Yep. Uh, and we all know well, what happened to her. Temporarily dead. Yeah. Well, that's why, yeah, coming a, back is Lady Stoneheart. A little Stoneheart bit of dying. She's yeah. pretty sad. The, the fact that Lady Stoneheart is loose in the world, I can understand why the Ghost of High Heart would interpret that as saddest of all. Yeah. So they, they never put <clears throat> Lady Stoneheart into the show, right? No. What that's show? crazy to me. <laughs> all right <laughs> there's hints i'm that... really bitter now yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's move. so nuts such a oh. yep uh oh, made with purple serpents in her hair that's the same maid that slays the savage giant in the castle of snow that's sansa at the purple yeah. wedding mm-hmm. yeah the purple serpents her amethysts in her hair being the amethysts yeah yeah and uh, this is where we might get a little bit of discussion. That's yep. that same maid, as Scott said, slaying savage giants in a castle of snow. There well, seems to be a very literal interpretation. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, little, little Robin's uh, doll 
which he uses to smash up the snow castle she builds in the Erie. Okay. Um, and then she rips the head off the doll. I think she hits him at some point in time. <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, and then the alternative interpretation uh, is that the giant is Littlefinger. Right. And that at some point she defeats him. But being described as a savage giant, I don't really buy into it because... Peter Baelish is anything but savage. Yeah, the castle is also Winterfell, right? And it would imply that, uh, like the show, Sansa and Littlefinger somehow magically arrive at Winterfell. Um, which, you know, I don't, I don't think Peter has any plans at this point to, to go that route. I mean, his plan is all around Harry the Air and getting the veil. And Well, who knows? Maybe he's going to get the air and then he's going to get Sansa to Winterfell to get Winterfell as well. Yeah, maybe. It just, uh, and, you know, Germ works in mysterious ways. Mysterious mm-hmm. ways. Um, He's but not all opposed these, to taking of, the long way around. Sure. But all <laughs> of these other prophecies that the Ghost of Highheart is espousing are kind of within a similar timeline. Yeah. And that would be much further down the line. Yeah, that's what's interesting with those other prophecies. So taken in context, this whole thing with, there are these big events, Red Wedding, Purple Wedding, um, even the Harrenhal thing could be considered a pretty major yeah, event because sure. uh, it's Harrenhal. And then this little instance of Sansa and Robin, like it just seems it's totally out of context with the rest of the events, right? Why would she even bring it up? So, yeah, I, I kind of agree with the other interpretation that the savage giant is something else. The castle of snow is Winterfell. If that's Littlefinger, great. Um, the giant... And I did, uh, I was pointed to this uh, after doing some research online. The Littlefinger or the Baelish sigil before was the Titan of Bravos, which is mm. a giant. So that could lend mm. credence to your idea that. Uh, and Peter was like, it's uh, Peter. I'm, more, I'm more of a mockingbird kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah, not liking this. I, I need a much weaker <laughs> sigil. sigil. More subtle. Yeah. 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 So, Which actually, I joke about it, but it makes sense. He would he would do that. He'd be like, mm-hmm. "I want no, people to underestimate me." So, yep. little songbird on my breast. Mm-hmm. There yeah, are things maybe to have on your breast. That whole Robin of Aaron <laughs> thing would be a, a a metaphor to what Sansa's going to do later, mm-hmm. or foreshadowing, or whatever literary device you'd call that. But yeah, I would agree that it's it seems like a, a minor event compared to the others. Um, Unless you're talking about characterization, which I don't know why the Ghost of Whiteheart would think in the terms of characterization. Mm-hmm. But as a reader, that moment for Sansa is enormous. Okay. I mean, I remember reading that chapter for the first time and feeling, not for the first time, I identified with Sansa before this, but, but maybe for the first time feeling like Sansa is a Stark. She mm. remembers. And throughout this whole thing, I've been feeling like, her wolf connect, needed to be there to connect her back to her identity, but she still has it. It's there. And so from a characterization perspective, it's a very important scene. But you're right, as a, as a major event, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll see. We'll see. All right, do you want to talk about uh, Dane stuff? And then we'll call it? Yeah. Unless there's any other little things. Does anyone have anything substantial to say about it? 
I've, I've always got weird stuff to say. That's why we love you, Matt. Tell us your weirdness. So in relation to Team John, if Team John is real, then this is my idea. So can you just, at our, just in, in two sentences recap Team John? Thank you. That's a good idea. Uh, Team John is the idea that um, John has an important heritage and destiny to fulfill and that there are a few individuals in Westeros who know of that heritage and destiny and so are behind the scenes working to help him realize that heritage slash destiny. Some of them being J.R. Mormont, Benjen Stark, maybe Bloodraven, uh, Eddard, and this might add in... Mance, who is Rhaegar, obviously. Uh, <laughs> obviously. And now I'm bringing That's the Danes. Test. Now I'm bringing in the Danes to this whole idea. And so amendment number one to to your statement is uh, a few people has now turned into quite all, a of few people. <laughs> yeah. all of Westeros. All of Westeros. By the end of this, everyone's in on Team John. So Eddard, going clear back to the Tower of Joy, Eddard Stark goes to the Tower of Joy. Which, how did he know they were at the Tower of Joy in the first place? I've got an idea on that, too. He was told. Right. (laughs) This is the the literary answer. But he does not kill Arthur. Instead, they start chatting, and they come to an understanding about the importance of Rhaegar and Lyanna's baby. And Arthur agrees to go into hiding in order to protect Jon in some sort of way, kind of a Ben Kenobi type thing. Wow. And to really throw them off of any scent that uh, Arthur might be alive, he gives Don his sword to Eddard, knowing that if, I mean, a guy was ever seen with a pretty popular sword, Don is pretty popular, his cover might be blown. So he's even got to give up Don. Where does he go? I don't know. Maybe to the wall with Rhaegar where he becomes Corrin Halfhand? (gasps) I've heard that theory thrown about that (laughs) Arthur dates Corrin Halfhand. Anyways... So I don't know where he'd be. I have no answer to that. Anyways, Eddard returns with Don to the Danes. Maybe he even tells him them the secret so they don't want to kill him. Because that's one thing that's always bugged me is like, you just killed our most celebrity brother guy. Why would they even let Eddard live? Oh, thanks for bringing us back to our bringing back his sword. Now we're going to kill you. Well, because Ashara loves him might be one reason. Might be. Um just maybe he tells them the secret though so they don't want to kill him i don't know he lets some of them in on what's going on he's also got a baby in tow that's going to need some milk hence the danes providing their wet nurse willa to feed the baby um eddard remembers the name and decides it would be convenient cover for later on but now ashara this one's tricky and I wonder if maybe Ashara's suicide was over guilt. Like, she's the one that told Ned where to find Leon at the Tower of Joy. And so when he returned with Dawn, she felt responsible for Arthur's death. And that's what drove her to kill herself. Or maybe, as many have postulated, including us, she's not dead at all. Because they've never recovered her body. Yeah, I feel like she's a little more, but I haven't done enough research to really feel like I can back that up. Yeah, that's that's a, a theory out there. Yeah, I think we've postulated maybe she's Quaith, but I don't really. <laughs> Who that's just Who more of the Benjamin's Quaith. Yeah, uh, yeah, everyone's Quaith. That's that's my crazy Team John idea. You asked for it, Brooke. What do you think? I'm impressed. It's uh, comprehensive. I like it. Uh, lots of people just hiding out, 
Who knows where? <laughs> we don't know where they are. That's uh, my simple answer. They're just hiding somewhere. <laughs> looking out for John. Lots of convenient explanations of yeah. somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Swordless and somewhere. Uh, yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right that the whole uh, Willa and Ned not being killed and him actually returning the sword, there's something, there's details there that we have not received yet. Yeah. And obviously no one's told Edric. Yeah, or, well, yeah. Go ahead, Scott. Well, it, I mean, Utrecht could be in on it. You know, why is he named Ned? Um, that's a, it's an important name to this whole story. Oh, that's my other part to that theory is that, you know, they appreciated so much that Eddard uh, kept Arthur alive or whatever, all this stuff, that they wanted to honor his name. And that's how, that's why they call him, that's why they call Edric Ned. Although with how Arthur was as a warrior, as he's rumored to be, I don't know that Eddard, quote unquote, letting him live is a realistic situation. Yeah, I I mean, more likely is that Arthur was dying and they had this conversation to me. Uh, Sure. Yeah, maybe. But, um, you know, with Ned and why he knows this story and why he's named Ned and, um, you know, just from a Teen John perspective, it, it might be much simpler. Um, you know, he, Arthur died, Ed, uh, Ned, uh, Eddard Stark told the Danes about the child, who he really was, mm-hmm. asked for their help, uh, in hiding it, saying that it's what Arthur would have wanted, uh, you know, to protect Rhaegar's yeah. child. Well, and, I like that. And just that, that, that they're complicit in trying to keep the secret and yeah. are actively telling stories like Ned is telling to Arya in order to further that mystery. Just the fact that Arthur didn't die needlessly, yeah, right? Right. That he didn't just die because Rhaegar kidnapped a woman. Yeah. Like, he died for a higher cause, might have brought them that comfort and that respect for Eddard that yeah. would lead to all this. Yeah. yeah, I like that too. That's a very simple explanation that's, I think, very plausible. Maybe even more plausible than mine. I like it. Thank you. <laughs> You got anything else? We done? There's tons, but that's the big stuff, and uh, we've been going for a while. And so. it's 12.39 a.m.? Yeah. <laughs> yep. I say yes. we end this We end this thing. Yeah. It's been a great episode, though. I've had a it lot of fun. It has been a lot of fun. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Good times. I miss you guys. This three weeks is awesome for some reasons, but uh, for other reasons, it sucks. Yeah. It gives us a lot of time to prepare and put other things in order in our lives but i agree Michigan. this is always a highlight of every three weeks yeah for the three weeks we've been doing it <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay we, all right let's, uh, let's end this thing brooke okay. take us out of here uh this is brooke signing off saying uh john was cheated by jamie loving internet assholes and i'll never forgive you incest loving ditch pigs never <laughs> but thank you for participating in the song of madness tournament Wow. Very good. Very good. And mine is a quote from Dario. May we all live our lives in this way that we uh, don't count a day as lived unless we have loved a woman or man, slain a foeman, and eaten a fine meal. Mm. Get behind that. Get behind that unless you want to go to prison. Um, <laughs> Ew. 
All right, mine. Uh, both Jamie's chapter and Arya's have sections about the plight of war uh, and abandoned keeps and families that used to rule uh, a location that are now not even there, questioning, you know, what happened to the people that used to live there. So from the Megadeth, your body has parts your country can spare. By the way, son, here's your wheelchair. <laughs> Whoa. Vietnam much? A little bit. <laughs> Good night, guys. Good night, everybody. Night. <laughs> it's true. And then that second poll, oh, that made me even more mad because, like, oh, if, if Jamie lovers spent, like, a little less time fucking their sisters, a little <laughs> more time having a life, that would have happened. Whoa. Well, I, oh. I think I said this to you, Matt, uh, bef- right before we did it. I think I said on Skype, I'm pretty sure Jamie's going to win this because the Jamie supporters are more active. They know how to mobilize, man. Yeah, they mo- yeah, they got a good ground game. Carefully left Lost Stars right on the couch for Sheltie tonight so that she can try to read it since she can't watch Netflix or anything. We'll see if it works. I'll let you guys know. Oh, man. What kind of rift in your marriage have we created? <laughs> it's a deep... Kelsey. Sorry. Kelsey. I'm going to call her that and see if the rift gets deeper. Oh, I'm so Good sorry. I will, will one day remember your wife's name. That's all right. Kelsey, uh, just, just sit here quietly. Um, don't walk around. Don't flush the toilet. No television. Shh. Here's, but here's I will give you this for you, book honey. that I like to <laughs> It's read. a fantastic book. Just read it. She's okay. like, you're not getting any tonight, Sketty. And I said, how is that different from any other time this month? hey <laughs> Guys, it's only second of the month. <laughs> I don't want to joke about your sex life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in that you are alone. Do. I kind of want to do. Uh, yeah. I'm drinking Mountain Dew now. Because I already peed before the podcast and pooped. It burned. I pooped twice. Not solid. Explosive, actually. Arya <laughs> Stark. Stop laughing, Brooke. <laughs> Arya Stark. Uh, Davos Seaworth. Tyrion Lannister. Hey friends, just wanted to take a sec to give you some info on some of the uh, musical samples you heard tonight, just in case you want to check them out for yourselves. Of course, we highly recommend them. Uh, We had a snippet from the song Number 41 by the Dave Matthews Band. It's originally from their album Crash, but the version we included is from a a live album called Listener Supported. It's 100% my favorite song of all time, and uh, if you don't like it, you're a weirdo. Uh, We also had With or Without You by U2. That's from their album, The Joshua Tree. Uh, Also has one of my favorite songs, Where the Streets Have No Name, on that album. Um, Take No Prisoners by Megadeth. That's from their album, Rust in Peace. You'll have to ask Scad about that one. 
we had our song for Barrick, The Mercy Seat. That's originally by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds off their album Tender Prey. However, the version that we included at Brooks' recommendation was uh, from Johnny Cash and his album American Three, Solitary Man. And then also we had, uh, of course, a clip from All Apologies by Nirvana. That's from their album In Utero. But the version we included is a live acoustic version from their album MTV Unplugged in New York. So check them out. Hope you enjoyed the episode and good night, guys.